You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Bill Foster is an ordinary man. Where are you going? Going home. Not this way or not. Why not? Metro Rail Construction, that's why not. Living in the everyday world. I don't suppose you'd have a couple of bucks you could give me. It wouldn't really help me out. If you give me your address, I'll mail it back, honest. A patient man. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese wamlet or wham fries. I'm sorry. We stopped serving breakfast at 11.30. Who's running out of patience? I get some change for the phones. A peaceful man. No, it's serious. I have to buy something. Who's about to be pushed. 85 cent, 85 cent. Hasn't given me enough money for the phone call. Drink, 85 cent. You pay a gold. A little too far. I stay. I mean, you stole your baseball bat, but he paid for the soda. Just standing up for my rights. As a consumer. Oh, this guy's discriminating. What kind of vigilante are you? I'm just trying to get home to my little girl's birthday. Give us your briefcase. If everybody will stay out of my way. Here, you want a briefcase? Here's my briefcase! Where's the briefcase? Huh? Wait, 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 Then nobody will get hurt. Warner Brothers presents. Say, would you get off my golf course? Yeah. The story of an everyday guy who refused Five. to take it one more day. So we got a nutcase with a bag full of guns. He's in Hollywood right now, and he's heading west. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's other people waiting to use the phone here. Now, if you go up against this guy, be careful. I think it's out of order. Somebody in a white shirt and tie gunned down a phone with three blocks in the Whammy Burger. Michael Douglas. In America, we have the freedom of speech. Come on, I want to be a parking lot. I buy a ticket. The right to disagree. Robert Duvall. I know who this guy is. In a Joel Schumacher film. What are you doing to the street? We're fixing it. What the hell does it look like? See, I don't think anything's wrong with the street. I think you're just trying to justify your inflated budgets. Well, I guess so. I'll give you something to fix. What are you... Hey, Charlie! 
falling down. Let's call it a day. Come on. I'm the bad guy? A tale of urban reality. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jamie Duvall. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back on. Also with us this week is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hello, sir. I'm glad to be back. This week, we are discussing the 1993 film from Joel Schumacher, Falling Down. Written by Abby Rose Smith, the film stars Michael Douglas as a white guy who's wound a little too tight and finally snaps. We're going to be getting into spoilers about this movie and also discussing some fairly controversial subjects like race, class, and domestic abuse. So if you're a little cuck snowflake, you may want to turn off this podcast and come back after you've grown a pair. Jamie, when was the first time you saw Falling Down, and what did you think? Well, this was a period of time when I was uh, managing uh, a movie theater. So uh, it was one of those films that I saw the, the Thursday or whatever it was before it opened. And I thought it was an interesting film. And I, I haven't really revisited it over the intervening 25 years. But when I did recently in pre- preparation for the show, it became a much more interesting film <laughs> for me. It, 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 I think it... It, it it resonates uh, in this uh, political and cultural climate that we're in today in a very uh, surprising way. I saw it opening weekend and was grossly disappointed initially because I'm a huge Michael Douglas fan. And I'm like, where where's all the sex? I don't understand what the hell is going on. And I love Joel Schumacher. Expected, I didn't expect this when I went and saw the movie. So it was quite shocking and off-putting, but I, I enjoyed it. And then years later, I revisited it and saw a little bit more of what they were going for when I had that, that fandom of me excised. Yeah, we cannot stress enough how big of a star Michael Douglas was at this time. He was on a string of just some amazing films. Start, well, let's just say he was on a string of hits. The Whether they were amazing films or not can definitely be debated. War of the Roses, Black Rain, Basic Instinct. Oh, hey, hey, Black Rain. I freaking love Black Rain. I will defend it till the day I die. I love that movie. It's got Andy Garcia in it, man, and that's a real tough <laughs> sell for me. It was cross-cultural. I mean, it was bringing cultures together, really. When I saw Falling Down, I dislike this movie strongly i don't know if i yet like this movie but i think kind of like what you're saying aaron i'm kind of more aware of what they're trying to do with it now but when i saw it the first time i really did not care for it and this was also one of those times where i was so angry. I I was getting like Annie Wilkes level angry when I would read reviews of the film. This was back when I still read movie reviews. I would read reviews of the film and they would refer to Michael Douglas's character as defense. And he only has the name defense. That's the only name that he has in this movie. Bill Foster is an ordinary man. Okay. You're getting this from the press notes. You didn't actually watch the movie because they say what his name is in the film. Bill Foster you obviously either didn't remember, didn't care, or didn't actually see the film. So which is it? Every time somebody refers to Michael Douglas as only having the name Defense, a little part of me dies. And there's not that much left inside of me anymore because so many people have referred to him as Defense. Be warned, he actually has a name. His name is William Bill Foster. Just uh, if you actually paid attention, you would know that. Bill Foster. IMDb has it as defense. I know. And if IMDb says it, 
then it's got to it be It must right. be true. <laughs> and they also have his mother as Defense's mother. But With Michael Douglas, there were few actors who were bigger, if anyone. But when he got his Oscar for Wall Street in 87 for playing kind of a, a smarmy, villainous type, I think that changed the trajectory of what he tried to do for, for several years. And so he specialized at that point in morally compromised slash bankrupt characters. And I think this is the culmination of that. It's a really interesting film and a portrayal because it's Michael Douglas. He brings so much of his natural charisma Mm -hmm. to the screen. And yet, are you supposed to root for him? Or it becomes obvious that you're not really supposed to, but it's so it's a very conflicting experience as as you're watching it. I, I found it to be an inspired and dangerous choice on Michael Douglas's part because, of, like you said, at this point he was a huge, huge star, and he, you know his clout wasn't going down. But this was a bold choice for him to make because, mm-hmm. as the, as you know, the character is. He's a horrible person, really. Or he comes, he does some horrible things. Maybe it's the right way to say it. The choices he makes throughout could really kill an actor's career. In this day and age, they really would kill an actor's career. I admire him for being willing to take the chance to to do this. And I thought it was an inspired choice on Schumacher's part because Douglas does have that, like you said, he has that charisma, that natural energy that draws audiences in. So it's easy to maybe not sympathize, but empathize with his character because we love Michael Douglas. So even when he's doing awful things, we're like, eh, but it's Michael Douglas and we love him at that time. But he's he's constantly referred to as kind of, because reading some of the past reviews of it when it first came out, this everyman kind of character. And I mean, if this is everyman, then you're in trouble. That's <laughs> what, what I kept thinking. And maybe that's the point of the, one of the points of the film, really. Yeah, we want Michael Douglas to be, well, especially now, but we want Michael Douglas to be our president. You know, we want him to be much better than he is. But he did have this great affinity for playing heels and playing victims, uh, especially victims of women uh, with fatal attraction, with basic instinct, with disclosure. I mean, he really had this whole thing where he was uh, you know, being played by these women and couldn't get a leg up, though he ultimately always triumphed. And in this film, he doesn't triumph, uh, nor should he. And that's the thing, though, is that he is shaded when he probably shouldn't be. And I think that a lot of the changes to the screenplay, and we'll talk about this as we go along, kind of made sure that Michael Douglas still was charismatic when maybe he shouldn't have been as charismatic as he is. Maybe we shouldn't have felt an affinity towards him. But, you know, that that's what makes this a troublesome movie, but also something that I have been able to go back to since then and say, okay, I can kind of see what he's trying to go for here. Another movie that garners the same reaction from me is Star 80. I love the movie Star 80 from Bob Mm -hmm. Fosse, and yet there are elements of that movie that are deeply troubling to me, not in terms of the subject matter, but in terms of Fosse's handling of it. And what exactly is he saying? The fact that it's troubling to me makes the movie even more fascinating and, and engrossing to me. Like, I, I got to figure it out. You know, I'm conflicted about it. And I feel, to a lesser degree, that way about falling down. 
you know, Michael Douglas, as we said, specialized in these kinds of characters. I think he really got off on that. The the idea of playing a character that uh, half the audience will find despicable and the other half will say, oh, no, nah, he's all right. And I, I think the, the movie, does the movie know what to do with that? Does it, when, as it kind of vacillates back and forth, it is, uh, it, I don't know, ultimately. I don't think this movie works without Michael Douglas. I, re- I really believe the movie ultimately works. I, I don't, I mean, whether it works well or not is debatable for sure. But I, I think the entertainment factor, the, the relatability to audiences really works well because of Michael Douglas and who he is and what he brings to the table. He has a very natural, genuine feeling about him as a, as a person, as a character and every character he plays, you sympathize for, even though, like you said, they're heels. And this is one that I think you need to, if you want to follow him on the journey and have some concern about where his journey is going to end, you have to have some kind of empathy for that character. And I think he w- he's an actor that pulled that off. It could have been a very one-note Jason Statham, Steven Seagal-ish kind of role, and he made it work. I agree. I agree that he's the perfect actor for this. But it's also interesting as he's kind of wrecking mayhem across the city that there's no elation involved, really. And I think in a lot of these movies, there might have been that might have been portrayed. I mean, the closest it comes is the, are the golfers, I think. But even that, at the end, that sequence with the golfers, it becomes a, a real act of cruelty uh, and, and kind of madness, even though it might start kind of tongue-in-cheek. So, uh, yeah, it's complicated, I think. And, and, and he's a complicated actor, so that's why, that's why he's perfect. He's, he's willing to play those conflicting kind of parts. Well, the film opens very interestingly with a single take that starts, I want to say it starts on Michael Douglas's mouth and kind of goes out from there and circles around the car and goes out and then comes back and shows us in his car where he's not having the best day. And then we start to really amp up the tension with sound effects, with quick cuts, with a lot of, uh, of close-ups, uncomfortable, uncomfortably close close-ups uh, until Douglas has had it and he finally kind of snaps and steps out of his car in traffic or in a traffic jam and walks away and says that he's going to go home. And that's his whole raison d'etre from there on out is his journey to go to home and it's really it's not his home i don't know if it once was his home or not i would think that his wife had moved away but um maybe not from there um but and then we're kind of introduced to the second leg of the stool which is the robert duvall character the prendergast character who is Amazingly, he's a cop who's on his last day of the job and he manages to survive. So I think we're, we're, <laughs> there's only one, uh, a stereotype in this film that I think that it uh, overcomes and that is the, uh, the cop who has his last day and he manages to make it to the end of it. But then I'd have to say that the third leg of the stool, if we're going to look at it that way, is Barbara Hershey as the ex-wife and i don't think that she's the strongest leg around i think that the movie kind of falters when it comes to her storyline and i wish that it was uh, more involved with her and instead it's more the duval douglas story than having her she in there she's just kind of like this they bring her back in quite often to remind us of her and to remind us of the end of the journey but she doesn't necessarily have the the biggest presence there 
Duvall, I mean, really, he makes anything better. Anything. Hershey's a good actress. I, I like her in most things she's done. But you're right. Here, that character is just, uh, it's a little underwritten. And like I said, there's a thing near the end where I'm just like, I just, my head hit the table from the idiocy of, of, the, of the the pivot. But yeah, I, I wish I would have needed, I needed more out of that. I mean, we saw his perspective and I, and I got that, but I didn't really understand her other than she's frightened of him. The opening is obviously reminiscent of Eight and a Half, and that's one of my all-time favorite sequences. Uh, when he's trapped and he's looking around, it's, it's just to give you more and more tension and odd faces and crying children and all that kind of stuff. But in Eight and a Half, Master Antonio, he kind of ascends above his car and goes off into the clouds. Douglas uh, just gets out of his car in a traffic jam and runs off, and that's when his odyssey begins. Uh, I think it's really a, a well-done sequence in, in all those respects, the, the extreme close-ups and the sound and the faces and the portrayal of kind of heat. It, it, it reminded me a little bit of Do the Right Thing and the color scheme of Do the Right Thing. With the, There's a lot of reds in this movie. The whole going home notion is also interesting because this is a guy with a, a 50s buzz cut. He works for a defense contractor, he builds missiles, and he, in the early 90s, is obsolete. He can't go back home. So I think, I think to a certain extent, his, his story and the theme of the film is about uh, the failure to adapt. I think that certainly afflicts him. I don't think it's any coincidence that when he goes into the Korean shopkeeper's place and starts complaining about the prices that he says he's going to roll prices back to 1965. That is 30 years prior at the time of, of uh, the movie coming out. And I think that probably would have been, you know, we all think back to our childhoods, uh, hopefully, and think that things were better then. And 30 years prior would have been a better time for this character, though 1965 probably really wasn't the best time. Uh, we're, we're coming up on the Watts riots here pretty soon, <laughs> but uh, he definitely is a man out of place and out of step with the world. And it's kind of that thing that uh, we hear often from the right wing, which is, you know, let's go back to the good old days. And then it's just like, well, what good old days are you talking about? Are you talking about 1950s when black people couldn't eat at the same counter as white people? Are you talking about the 1840s when you could own black people? I mean, just what are your considerations for the good old days? Why do you think that the older times were the simpler times? Well, and the smashing of the American flags, you know, that was very, very pointed choice, which uh, that's the one thing about the stereotypes. And it starts with the Korean shopkeeper is, you know, some movies have a message to offer and they do it very subtly and, and very succinctly. I think this movie is just takes a hammer and kind of smashes it on the nail quite a few times every time, really. But I think it works in this the context of this film. I think it works for this film. And the Korean one in particular is kind of setting up what they're trying to go for is they're showing this disconnect between white middle America and everyone else that's in the country. That's where it starts. That's where the smashing of the flags begins. Roll it back to 1965. The whole debate with the Korean shopkeeper. I, I think they're using that as a as a starting point to kick off what they intend to do, which is represent every stereotype you've ever witnessed. The sh Korean shopkeeper makes the assumption, 
and I would say it's a pretty fair assumption that Michael Douglas is there to rob him, rob his shop. And Douglas is just shocked. You know, why would I rob you? And and how dare you even imply that I'm a robber? You know, I'm just here to adjust your prices. I'm just here to destroy your shop, not rob your shop. I speak slowly and distinctly. Take the money! You think I'm a thief? No. See, I'm not the thief. I'm not the one charging 85 cents for a stinking soda! You're the thief! I mean, he is a man that has a fractured psyche. He's presented as, as a mental break, and the movie and Douglas and whatnot capture that well, and this is a good scene of it, illustrating that he doesn't understand I, re- I truly believe the character, William Foster, or defense, if you're IMDb, I do believe that character doesn't fully understand what he's doing throughout the day, that he, he is just snapped, and he's going to take out his internal rage on everyone and everything he comes across. It really comes out in that I'm the bad guy question that he throws out at the end. I mean, really, he doesn't think that anything that he's done today is bad. There's no depth of empathy or context as well and and I completely agree with Aaron that he's he's not really uh he doesn't know what he's doing throughout the day from moment to moment but that that conversation with a, sh- a Korean shopkeeper he's like do you know how much money we've given your country <laughs> and, and uh, he says how much he says well I don't know but I'm sure it's a lot <laughs> I mean there there's kind of these platitudes like these blanket statements that uh, you know, there's no real depth of knowledge behind them. It's just a, 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 an assumption. That whole thing of you've been in my country for so long, why haven't you learned the language? Having lived in another country for just a few months, uh, yeah, I can see living in another country and never learning the language. It's it's pretty fucking hard to learn another language sometimes. <laughs> so I, I think he's doing a pretty good job there. Kudos to Mr. Lee. Yeah, and wasn't there a protest? Didn't the, wasn't the movie banned from Korea because of that scene? They took him to court or something, or they threatened a lawsuit or something. Well, for sure, it didn't play in North Korea. We get more of the Duval backstory coming up here, and I don't think it's any small coincidence that Robert Duval's character had a little girl who ended up dying. We find that out as the movie goes on, but that we have this this parody between Douglas and Duvall here where one had a little girl, the other one also had a little girl. Uh, Douglas's little girl is still alive, but he's unable to see her, feels robbed of her, whereas Pendergrass is the, the, the character that Duvall plays. He was robbed of his little girl, and that also put a huge strain on his marriage. And we get Tuesday Weld, who we only really see on the other end of a phone in this film, giving this terrific unhinged performance. She is such a, a harpy in this. It, it really does not paint a very good picture of her, but it's kind of understandable. She's lost a kid. Her husband's a cop. When uh, he, he almost got shot in the line of duty, I think there's a, a, a some mention of that. And so she's petrified that she's going to lose him as well. And she's kind of going off the deep end a little bit as far as being overprotective of him, being overprotective insofar as wanting him to retire from the police force and moving to Arizona where – the London Bridge has been moved to, and then also being protective that 
she doesn't want him talking to other women, doesn't want him to have a going away party at work because she is uh, convinced that there's going to be a stripper there. So some of it is a little heavy handed. But I think, again, to what we've been saying, a lot of this movie is heavy handed. So we're just going to continue to, to mash things with the uh, the baseball bat as we go along here. The stereotype buffet is in full effect in this film. And you either go, you either go with it or you don't. And I think you you can easily go with it because it's an entertaining film. And the the dichotomy between uh, uh, Duvall's character and Douglas's character is very intriguing to me because Duvall has more reason to have snapped than Douglas. And that's obviously what I took as a picture that was being painted was he had all the same the same things occurred and he didn't snap. He held it together. Yet Douglas had he lost less and he couldn't keep it together for the sake of his family that he could have if he could hold it together. So I just I just found this interesting dichotomy as the movie went on between the two characters and seeing how to me it was saying, look how close we all are to slipping off the edge. I was glad, though, to see that Rachel Tecotin, I think is how you pronounce her name, even though she's a Latina actress, she doesn't necessarily play a stereotype, which was nice. She definitely isn't like the other Latina actress in here, where it's like the the, the gang mall in you know like uh, Los Cholos, uh, the 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 um, uh, Mexican gang that's going to be wandering around shooting up people and drive-by shootings. Rachel Tacotin, uh, if people don't necessarily recognize her by name they would definitely know her uh just by her face uh she's been in uh, a lot of great stuff especially to me my favorites being uh con air and total recall where she played uh an extra sleazy freedom fighter so that that's always nice but i really like her character and i like when she and duval are working the case together she's got an amazingly jack ashes new partner who i think he's just like like channeling Bill Paxton from another film. I just kept getting Bill Paxton vibe, but nowhere near as good as Bill Paxton through that character. The partner is awful. <laughs> Very early 90s cliche, I guess. But the whole movie is a cliche. So they were they really did. I swear they were, that somebody had a, a board and they were putting down. OK, guys, every stereotype, throw it at me. Got it. Cop, one last day. Got it. All right, and we're gonna have we're gonna have Asian people. We're gonna have Korean and Japanese because we got the Japanese partner too. Then we're gonna have the Hispanics. We're gonna have blacks. We're gonna have racist gays. We're gonna have everything. And I think they checked them all off. Did a fine job. Got them all. Well, do they have blacks? Because there's only one black character that I can think of in the film. Yeah, then well, they had the black kid that shows him how to work a bazooka because of course he would. And they had the black guy who's not economically viable, which weirdly enough is what. Douglas's character says later on in the film that he's not economically viable, which is really strange that he actually can feel, can empathize for what this black guy is going through, which is the only time for me that this movie doesn't have a bingo on that bingo card of racial politics. Because it's just like, oh, wow, there's a black person who isn't eating uh, fried chicken and watermelon on his front porch and shooting uh, shooting caps off on, on somebody's ass. I mean, I think in this one, we have replaced the black gang stereotype with now a Latino gang stereotype. I mean, there was a lot of gangland activity in L.A. in that period of time, right? Trust me, I saw Boys in the Hood. I know. I saw Juice, man. I know. 
I saw New Jack City. I know these things. Oh, don't bring Judd Nelson into this. True story. I grew up in the projects. Very, very accurate story. So I didn't have the, the easy white privilege life that a lot of people, a lot of my friends had. But I will tell you, I, just because you're white walking through a, a gang riddled t- area, you're not going to automatically get robbed. It, it just doesn't work. Like It drives me bonkers. That's the one stereotype that really pissed me off as soon as it happened. I'm like, God, don't do that one. I forgot about it because I hadn't seen it in so long. I'm like, don't do that one because I hate that one because you know what? I walked up and down the streets all the time and nobody really bothered me for the most part. I just hate that. Like just because a, a white guy walks in the neighborhood, hey, you know what? We're going to have to rob him. Obviously, white guy. Just bungling well, shit on me. You can't read our uh, graffiti either. I didn't see any signs. What you call that? Graffiti? No, man. That's not fucking graffiti. That's a sign. He can't read it, man. I'll read it for you. It says this is fucking private property. No fucking trespassing. This means fucking you. Says all that? Yeah. Well, maybe he wrote it in fucking English. I could fucking understand it. I think she's being funny. That was the one time during the movie where I was visibly angry, I think, if, if you were sitting next to me. Everything else was fine, but that one just bugged me. I don't know why. And there's, and there's also a white homeless guy that tries to uh, con him out of some, some money or something. But, you know, he's homeless. So that that's another politically incorrect thing to put in there. But and that's the thing. If 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 we're seeing this character as a portrait of white hate, uh, which, uh, you know, we hear a lot of today. I think there's blame on both sides. But you also had people, very fine people on both sides. Do the filmmakers see him as such? Mm. Is, is the film itself being told from that point of view? From his point of view, is the film condoning it or condemning it? There are moments when you could argue both. <laughs> and, that's true. That's, that's why it's such a, such a kind of fascinating movie to me. I do kind of like that there's this progression of weaponry that he gets as we go along. You know, he starts by stealing Mr. Lee's bat, then he takes the Latino gang member's knife, and then ends up taking their big bag of guns, and then takes the bazooka from the Frederick Forrest character. So we go uh, increasingly we're getting more and more firepower as we make this trip from one part of Los Angeles to another. Though I was very surprised he didn't just walk into any store anywhere and get an AK-47 without any sort of background check or mental stability check because I think that's kind of the, the, the rigor these days. When you're kind of disenfranchised, as Michael Douglas finds himself at the beginning of this movie, with his identity kind of stripped away from him and he's going mad, you tend to blame the other. You tend to kind of scapegoat the other. So I I don't know that he's, in his soul, he's a racist character. I mean, e- even that section in the uh, the vet store with Frederick Forrest, I mean, he's like, he's not going along with that guy's extremes. And he doesn't know why he thinks he would feel simpatico towards him. I think it's a question of just blaming all the, whoever you run it. I don't think it's racist. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I don't know if I'm making sense. It's more racism by happenstance than racism by institution, I suppose. Right. Yeah, and it's more just these people are in my way. I don't think it's something that's bred in him. And by the way, he's also 
he's, he spent his career supposedly building missiles to blow up the other. So in a way, in a way, it is inbred in him in, in, in some fashion. Or is it possible the script was trying to get the point across that a lot of people that are racist have no indication that they are like they they just don't understand their subtle beliefs, their small beliefs, their small words and actions are actually inherently racist. That's kind of what I took from that scene, because the pawn shop or whatever that was, he, he was so outwardly racist and Douglas doesn't understand. And he's like, he didn't he didn't understand the things that he believed and said and felt throughout the day were potentially racist because he doesn't see himself that way. He doesn't see himself in that particular light. I want you to have it. Why? Because I'm with you. Don't you get it? I was listening to the police scanner. I heard about the whammy burger. Fucking fantastic. It was a bunch of niggers, wasn't it? On TV, it's always nice looking white kids. But when you go in there, it's nothing but a bunch of fucking niggers. And they'll spit on your food if you're not nice to them. I know. I know all about it. I'm with you. We're the same, you and me. We're the same, don't you see? We are not the same. I'm an American. You're a sick asshole. He's not racist. He's not racist. He, he, that that guy, that panhandler, he was rude to him. And then he went into Whammy Burger and he was mean to those people, too. Right. I mean, I'm sure he has a black friend. Well, I think I think racism comes down to ignorance and intolerance. And I think he's he's ignorant. He's he's not empathetic to the, the situation of others. It is kind of complicated, and maybe maybe I'm trying to make it too complicated. But in this climate of today, I think everything is so black and white. And I'm not saying that falling down is this great example of subtlety, because because <laughs> it's not. But I, but I don't come down on on one side or the other in in terms of where he. I think I see where his hate comes from, and it's from losing everything that gives him identity. I think the movie's brave in showing that he had a screw loose. This isn't something that just happened overnight. His wife was threatened by him. I mean, she felt a violence in him, even if he didn't act upon it, which makes the day that this movie takes place feel even more dangerous because this is something that's been pent up for a long, long time, and it hasn't found expression necessarily. And this really puts a fine point on just the inanity of the system when it comes to domestic violence. Because the cops, if they don't openly disbelieve Barbara Hershey, there's just so little that she can do to protect herself when it comes to this. And it's basically like, oh, you have a restraining order? Well, have your lawyer call his lawyer. And it's like – Okay, what's that going to do? Aren't you actually going to do something? Oh, yeah, no, we'll hang out here for a little while, but then we'll leave. And so basically the Barbara Hershey story is she's another woman on a phone, just kind of like Tuesday Weld. She gets a little bit more interactivity with the police that show up, but for the most part, she's calling the cops every little bit and just saying, hey, this guy is calling me and harassing me, and I have a restraining order out against him, and I'm afraid he's going to do something violent. And that's all she seemingly can do. And it's terrible. And it just speaks to how awful domestic violence is in 
you know, in the way that we treat it. And it's no, you know, we, we keep having these crazy white guys go on rampages in this country and almost every single one of them these days is like oh yeah and had a history of domestic violence and it's like wow okay just like michael douglas in that movie all those years ago there's some people that uh, white people i mean i read this tonight that uh that love falling down love it for the wrong reason because they view it's okay to love falling down but they they view michael douglas as a hero there's another subsect that uh, obviously know that he's a villain. But I think there was an instance where uh, a, a guy committed a, an act of, of violence, a mass murder, and all he watched all day was falling down. That's what his wife or girlfriend said. It's another instance of, you know, you can't make movies for those crazies. I think the movie does ultimately paint him as a, as a villain. And I think that displeases a lot of people that might empathize with those, you know, this is our country. <laughs> what happened to the 1950s and 60s? You know, why I, I want to go back home again, just like this lead character. I don't think it's so much as, uh, well, it's all into the future, as there were these problems then, obviously, or the movie couldn't have been made. But for every stereotype I get angry about or get frustrated with, it also gets one that's quite accurate. Uh, domestic violence is very accurate. And the plight of the gays at that time was very much like that. I had gay friends that went through the same thing. They couldn't go in a store without someone yelling at them, you know. So it, it's a hard film to say one way or maybe that's part of the brilliance of it, that we can still talk about it today and it still brings up talking points and gets you, maybe brilliance is too strong a word, but <laughs> gets you talking about it and it still it still resonates because we still are the, the America of 1993 and these things are still a problem, obviously. And the film was actually hitting it so far over the head because a lot of these feelings were exactly how some people felt. So maybe there's a lot more truth in here than we just want to admit. I mean, a lot of these things came right from the headlines. Like 1984, there was a, the shooting at McDonald's. 1991, there was a shooting at Luby's. So, and there was, uh, I want to say even uh, right, I think it was like a year before falling down when it into production, there was a Korean person that was shot and killed in a store. And that was basically right from this film, you know, prior. And this whole thing is taking place. What was it during the, the Rodney King trial, the the LA riots. So it's just like, yeah, there's a lot of pent up anger going on here and a lot of explosions that have already happened. And this movie is, it's a reflection of that. And then it's also a snapshot for us to look back at from 1993 and go, yeah, we've really not come very far from this. It's not quite a vigilante movie, uh, like a taxi driver or death wish, but it, there's a part of it that feels like a death wish, even though you're, you're meant to sympathize with the Charles Bronson character in death wish. And, and I think falling down muddies the waters a lot more than something like death wish did. But, and it's not quite, a movie that's one of my favorites, which is the assassination of Richard Nixon. That's a movie that really shows you the makings of a domestic terrorist. And it, it completely puts you in his shoes. And I think that's valuable. This movie kind of falls in between death wish and assassination. Richard Nixon to be in that it feels like it's vacillating between that vigilante genre and understanding where this domestic terrorist comes from. And it's totally conflicted between <laughs> between the two, I feel like. What kind of vigilante are you? I am not a vigilante. I 
am just trying to get home to my little girl's birthday. And if everybody will stay out of my way, then nobody will get hurt. I'm trying to remember when Bernard Getz happened, because that was also one of the things that kind of leads to this, which was also – I think that was post – Death Wish, but it always felt like it was a reflection of of Death Wish, you know, in that uh, regard. And we got a lot of, uh, well, even all the way back to uh, 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 one of the best movies ever made, Predator 2, had a Bernard Getz type character inside of there. They want to paint him as this vigilante, though he is not. He has no real agenda. His only agenda is he wants to get back home. Yeah, and I hate, I almost hate saying some of this stuff because uh, I know the point of view that Joel Schumacher takes with this film. Joel Schumacher, as you know, Mike, is an absolute sweetheart. He's one of the kindest, warmest people I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to. And no one he's ever worked with, and he's worked with so many people, has a, has a bad word to say about him. They all think he's a sweetheart. So I obviously know he was painting Michael Douglas as a villain. Maybe this kind of ambiguity that watching the movie raises in its audience is intentional, uh, because if you were to obviously condemn him or condone him, you you could write it off. You could watch it. You know how you feel about it. You can forget about it. But the fact that uh, there's some ambiguity there on how you're supposed to feel about or how the filmmakers feel about him makes this movie live, and it feels a lot more dynamic because of it and so maybe it was intentional and then if so then that's kind of a brilliant move on Schumacher's part well I think Schumacher and he absolutely knew what he was doing he, he's a very talented director he's got a great history I mean look at his filmography the guy he's got great film after great film in my opinion I, I really feel like he was trying to my, what I saw was that he was trying to have a message movie, but make it entertaining. Instead of making something that's going to win an Oscar, actually talk to your average people, your your typical film goer. I really feel like Falling Down is that kind of movie. He's trying to make entertainment with a message that maybe it's a little overt in its message handling, but it's also a very true message in 1993 and maybe even now, I don't know. But he wants people to enjoy the experience in a way that's going to make them talk candidly with their friends without it turning into an argument like it would today again we have that parody between the douglas and duvall characters that to try to calm down the tuesday weld character duvall sings london bridge to her because they're going to arizona where the london bridge was moved to when michael douglas is out he ends up picking up a snow globe for his daughter as a present because it's her birthday that same day and it plays london bridge And then we get Frederick Forrest smashing it and said something horrific like, you know, that faggot shit or something like that. And then shortly after, we get a kind of a repeat of the line, you know, like where we get the title from falling down is that if he moves his hand, he will fall down. And that's the one move that he gets to counteract Frederick Forrest, that bizarro scene of Frederick Forrest where, you know, he's so 
anti-gay, but almost a prison rape that he does on Michael Douglas, the way that he's talking about it, and then the way that we focus in on Frederick Forrest's mouth when he's saying, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I mean, it's super, super homoerotic to me in the back of that that shop. Well, that's part of the stereotype, isn't it? That the most, you know, American Beauty, I think, covered that well. The biggest gay badgers are typically men that harbor homosexual feelings, and that's what I think they were just trying to well, they got that across pretty clear, I thought. There are two things I know about Mike Pence. There's that great speech that Michael Douglas gives to Barbara Hershey about that he's reached the point of no return. Do you know when that is? That's the point in a journey where it's longer to go back to the beginning than it is to continue to the end. It's like you remember when those astronauts got in trouble? They were going to the moon and something went wrong. I don't know, somebody screwed up. And they had to get them back to Earth. But they had passed the point of no return. So they had to go all the way around the moon to get back. And they were out of contact for hours. Everybody waited breathlessly to see if a bunch of dead guys in the can would pop out the other side. That's me. The other side of the moon now. Out of contact. And everybody's just going to have to wait till I pop out. He comes out of that whole shop completely changed after that point, dressed in black. He almost looks like a Viet Cong to me, the way that he's now dressed in black, now marching through the rest of L.A. to get to his destination and really turns up the violence because now he's actually, we've seen him kill someone. We've seen him shoot someone before. We saw him shoot one of the Latino gang members. He's threatened violence before. He's, you know, he's hurt other people before, but he shoots Frederick Forrest. And then it's not any amazing uh, film theory kind of thing when I say that he also shoots himself. He shoots himself in the mirror. You know, we just talked about that a couple weeks ago with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is that when, you know, he's kind of destroying that old image of himself and we don't see him any longer in that white shirt and tie that was kind of the signal of him being this button down guy. Now he's gone into full war mode. He's waging war in America. And that name right there is a specifically why I think this movie has, it's absolutely stunning in a way and that they cast Michael Douglas, because if you cast any other actor, I think by the time he puts that on, you can't take the movie seriously anymore. You just can't. I mean, you could, you could literally put Chuck Norris in this movie and play every scene exactly the same. And it's a completely different feel of a movie. I really believe because of Michael Douglas and the way that he comes out there, you still are, trying to be on his side when that moment happens, even though it's absurd and he's now killed someone, he's done horrific things throughout his day. He, he puts on the war uniform and you know, he's waging war in America and every American stereotype there is. And there's still something about the way that he portrays that character. The, even the way he walks, the bravada in his walk makes you still somewhat empathize with that character in a horrible way, but it's true. You know, you see it in all the a lot of bank robbery movies where they feel broken by the system and they're going to fight back and they're going to rob banks and there's an exhilaration and all of that kind of stuff. 
but falling down is, is because they're sticking it to the man or whatever, however you want to say it. But falling down is different because there is no exhilaration in it. So it builds up scenarios where other movies, you know, it goes into the Whataburger and uh, he's, he, he can't get breakfast and it's stupid and, and he expresses his displeasure. Other movies would play that and it'd be like a rah-rah moment. But then Douglas pulls out a gun. People in the restaurant are afraid. One of them vomits on themselves. And it, in each instance, it kind of, it kind of does that. And when he shoots for us, who's a despicable character, and Mike, you mentioned like the, the crack in the, the mirror and he's not his old self again. You would think that another movie would say, okay, now he's found his true calling. He's not the old guy. He's, he's going to start targeting Nazis, <laughs> you know, uh, but he's not. What he's ultimately trying to do is to get home to potentially hurt his wife and daughter. It's very sick. I mean, the man's very sick. I don't think the movie loses sight of that. I, I think that it stays with him to, through the end. And there's that strange part where he's on the golf course and he kind of murders that guy by giving him a heart attack. So, but it's not necessarily Michael Douglas's fault, I suppose. But then his little speech about. It's not enough. You got all these beautiful acres fencing for your little game. But you gotta kill me with a golf ball? You should have children playing here. You should have families having picnics. You should have a, a goddamn petting zoo. Instead, you got these these stupid electric carts for you old men with nothing better to do. That's a kind of a troublesome scene as well. And then they follow that up with like a one-two punch where he goes to this plastic surgeon's house. And you think that it's the plastic surgeon and his wife and daughter, again, another daughter there. But no, it's actually the help, you know, somebody that had worked on the house and was allowed to barbecue there. And that's the one moment where we have kind of a, a real family that is being uh, threatened before we get to the Barbara Hershey and her daughter uh, family. That to me is kind of trying to backpedal a little bit to be like, no, 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 he doesn't hate everyone. See, he can actually get along with these people just fine because they're all American Joes, just like you and me. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that statement, Mike. I, I really feel like that was there to illustrate that he doesn't real, he still cannot comprehend what he's doing. Like he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. I don't know if I see it the same way. I really feel like that scene is just there. So you understand this guy is broken he doesn't see rational thought. He doesn't see why people are so afraid of him. And also, I'm fine with the white guy golfer thing because fuck that guy. Yeah, I'd much rather him buy it than the manager at Whataburger. It's interesting, too, if you take this character as somebody who's unwilling to adapt, and that's his ultimate downfall, that you know he's in that plastic surgeon's mansion. And he's like, I guess I chose the wrong line of work. And then you consider that a plastic surgeon makes his fortune on other people that can't adapt. I mean, they can't adapt to aging. I'm sure you could look at different strands of this movie, and they all tie into that theme. I like that when Michael Douglas takes the little girl's hand, he's kind of squeezing it a little too hard, and he tells her, I didn't hurt you, sweetheart. Like, uh, reassuring her. Like, I'm sure he said the exact same thing to his own daughter after he's actually hurt her. So it's like he is so conditioned for that kind of response. That's kind of a really sad moment for me. Yeah, very, yeah. very true and bitter. 
bitter, bitterly harsh moment. And then, yeah, we're kind of just finally moving into the end here where I'm going to like write down what my guess is for your nitpick, put it in an envelope and then tear it open later. Cause I want to hear what your, your <laughs> okay. uh, critique of the end is here. Okay. Uh, this one, and I know Sch- Schumacher is going to be on here. I'm sorry if I rip on your, on your movie here, but I'm gonna, so <laughs> you have this woman, this, the wife, the mother who the entire film is petrified of this man, petrified. She's scared. We get it. You know, hey, he scares me. I don't want to be around him. I get it. She gets a phone call from him. She knows he's coming to the house, right? He comes running around the corner. She's terrified. She's taking the the child and hiding and waiting for him to run in the house so she can run out. Okay. Horrible, horrible thing. Where does he find her later after he watches a nice, sweet video? Has plenty of time. Sit down. Find the video. Put the video in. Scroll to the last part. Find out about the pier, etc. So I'm guessing a fair amount of time. Finds them on the pier and she's buying a hot dog. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with her? At that point, I'm like, you know what? She's got it coming. Let the kid go. But the wife, she obviously is not that good. I was fucking livid. Just livid. That, that was my nitpick. I think it was uh, just to kind of <clears throat> calm the child. I mean, the, the big thing is she goes to the pier that's right near the apartment. She didn't try to get away from him and with any great distance or grab a police officer off the street or, uh, you know, or run somewhere at a farther distance where that's not as obvious where he couldn't find her. I thought that's what you were going to nitpick at. No, no, that is what I'm nitpicking at. She went and stopped and got a hot dog. Why are you getting food? <laughs> you're, you're supposed to be terrified. You, you were noticeably terrified running out of that house, hiding, doing all of this stuff. You're on the phone. You're shaking. I mean, it's in every acting tick that she has. And then you stop for the pier and you get grab the kid a hot dog. I get trying to calm the kid down, but you already ran out of that house because you thought a man was coming to hurt you. Why would you stop until you just wouldn't stop until you found someone that could help you? I just that part was like, why are we getting hot dogs at the end of a pier that you have no chance to run off of? That was the thing I was going to say was just how many escape routes there are off a pier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it still it set up a cool ending. I really, I really dug dug the ending, but to get there was a bit of a stretch. And this is uh, finally getting Khan and Kirk in the same spot where we have Pendergrass and, and defense haha, on the same pier and having them finally confront one another. There is that great moment of disbelief from Michael Douglas where he's just like, I'm the bad guy? Yeah. How did that happen? I did everything they told me to. Did you know I build missiles? Yeah. I helped to protect America? You should be rewarded for that. Instead, they give it to the plastic surgeon. You know, they lied to me. Is that what this is about? You're angry because you got lied to? Is that why my chicken dinner's drying out in the oven? Hey. They lie to everybody. They lie to the fish. But that doesn't give you any special right to do what you did today. The only thing that makes you special is that little girl. Now let's go. 
He sounds almost like the Ed Norton character from, uh, or more like the Brad Pitt character from Fight Club. It's just like, what should I do now? I don't know. Get married. What should I do now? I don't know. Get a job. And it's just like, you know, he he followed all the rules, did everything that he was supposed to do, and now he feels cheated. He feels like the American dream has let him down. When I went to your school, I went to your This moment of suicide by cop, which I'm kind of glad that he gets shot. I think that they should have put him down, so I'm glad that he's over. And I just hope that they don't have any sort of problems with Robert Duvall, that he shot him when he was holding the kid's gun. I'm hoping that they can say, oh yeah, he had a real gun, because he did at one point. He did have a real gun, so I'm hoping that uh, that never comes back to bite uh, Robert Duvall in the ass. <laughs> yeah, they never did make a sequel. They called a sequel like, I, I can't get up. And where, uh, you know, Robert Duvall's, <laughs> Robert Duvall's being tried for shooting it out of our bed. It's, it's Robert Duvall's character, and it's, it's Sergeant Al Powell from Die Hard, and they're talking about how much problems they had because they shot people with fake guns. Yeah. <laughs> There's another actor at this that I love, and that's Raymond J. Barry. And he's another sweetheart of an actor to talk to, just a, just a great guy. And I remember asking him about falling down, and, and he was just uh, enamored by Robert Duvall. I mean, he, he thanked his lucky stars every day that he was able to share scenes with Robert Duvall, um, who is obviously such a effortless presence, a great combination of gravitas and just a completely easygoing nature. And I think that's what this role needed because it's somebody that sees horrible things, but it's in his blood. It's what he does. And he, he's kind of easygoing about it. Uh, and, and he obviously has an empathy to him. And, uh, you know, I think it, the movie makes it obvious that Duvall understands him to a certain degree. And he, he plays, he plays off that in that final confrontation with Douglas. Yeah, Raymond J. Berry, for people that might not know him by his name, because he's one of these amazing character actors who shows up in so many things. He's the guy that plays Duvall's captain in yeah. this. And my God, what a piece of shit he is in this movie. But he's he's great at it. He is fantastic at being this kind of doofus. When he screws up and asks Duvall how his kid is, and that's how we learn what happened, uh, well, part of what happened to Duvall's kid. That is a, a terrific moment. And then later on when he is riding Duvall, um, when Duvall talks about how Douglas had picked up this this uh, gym bag full of guns and he holds up his own gym bag. He's just like, am I a suspect now? It's just like, oh, what a creep. Mm. But he does it so well. Yeah, he really does. I just watched him in that movie Walk Hard from years ago with uh, Ed, uh, where he, he constantly repeats the line, the wrong kid died. <laughs> <laughs> he was wonderful on Justified, too, if you ever watched that show. He was fantastic mm. on that. I will say the ending, the, the one thing that watching it years later rectified for me is that when I first, when I initially saw the movie, and as I said, I, I was initially disappointed because I w- thought it was going to be more of a Michael Douglas vehicle. And it was more of a, it was going a little deeper than what his other films had been in that respect. And so when you got to the ending, I had always kind of didn't understand why Duvall would would actually just sit there and debate with him. It felt like such a movie thing to do. And then you know when I rewatched it a couple of years or probably a year or two later, 
And you actually put into context, you know, the whole he saw the gun and he's worried about the child and he lost his child and you have that correlation. I think the end actually really, really works, even though there's a lot of monologuing going on. I think it really works. And the hot dog nonsense, notwithstanding, that ending is is a perfect ending for that character and that arc. And Duvall, even though Douglas is great, Duvall owned that scene because he played it so seemingly small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from producer Timothy Harris. Next, we'll hear from screenwriter and actor Abby Rose Smith. And last, but definitely not least, is director Joel Schumacher. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 Third Street in the city, 48201. Do you ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? Do you ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock. And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth 
Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How did you get into the business of writing adaptations of movies? I was a novelist for about 10 years, and uh, just to make money, I would occasionally novelize film scripts, which is basically how I learned to write screenplays, because I didn't have any background in writing screenplays. But I sort of figured it out by osmosis from turning screenplays into novelizations. And then it just turned out my career was that way. I mean, after quite often you'll find that screenwriters have a success with an original film and then their career takes a completely different course because they're constantly being, you know, if, if their original film is successful, producers just want to hire them to do projects of their own you know, that are well advanced and have a good chance of being made. So it just happened that I think there were three films with Ivan Reitman where they had a script that they weren't happy with and they just, you know, wanted to completely revamp it. You had tried your hand at screenwriting before you did the novelization, though, because you adapted your own work, uh, Kronsky McSmash. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I wrote a I'd never even seen a screenplay when I read that. I think the screenplay I wrote was about 200 pages long. It had wardrobe notes. And eventually, years later, I made friends with an executive at Warner Brothers. And I said, could you find this document in the archives? Because I'd be really curious to see it. And she searched for it and couldn't find it. So I'm sure it just went into a waste paper basket. Can you tell me, how did you meet uh, Herschel Weingrad? I was on holiday with my English girlfriend in a tiny little village in Crete. And there was, there was this one other couple. There were no other foreigners there. And I'd run out of books. So I approached him. I could see that he was reading a book and asked if I could borrow some of his books. And we just became good friends. He, he was traveling with a English girlfriend of his own. And uh, he was living in London, going to the film school there. So we, we we moved back to London, we saw a bit of each other, and then we lost touch with each other. And then both of our English girlfriends, who we were no longer with, ran into each other at a party in L.A., and they put us in touch with each other. And I sort of helped him. He'd written a screenplay, which I got my agent to represent, and which, which is called Heatwave. And I'd moved back to England, actually, then for about a year. And I turned Heatwave into a... Not, you know, I novelized Heatwave. I think one of my novels was going to be optioned, Good Night and Goodbye, and my agent said I should come back to L.A. And while I was waiting around for that to happen, I got in touch with Herschel, and we wrote a screenplay called Cheaper to Keep Him very quickly, which got made. You two wrote several, several screenplays together. What was that working relationship like? It was fine. You know, we were, we were sort of best friends, and we were suddenly making money, you know, going from being extremely poor to being able to buy cars and houses. So it was, it was great. Also, I'd spent about 10 years by myself writing novels. So it was, it was a great relief to, for which I wasn't paid very much money to suddenly be making decent money and having fun. Yeah. Must've been quite a uh, difference to have somebody to bounce ideas off of rather than just you being your own counsel. And I'm one of those people that, if I can talk to somebody about a problem, I'll usually sort of solve the problem myself in talking about it. The answer will come to me. Whereas if I'm just left to my own devices, it's a harder proposition. Yes, yeah, so I do like working with somebody. 
I have to say one of your most successful screenplays, or at least in my mind, is uh, Trading Places. And it's got a real air of almost an old screwball comedy to it. Did you guys find any inspiration in the older films, say like uh, Ernst Lubitsch? Or- yeah, I mean, those are, the, those are the films that I sort of grew up on a bit. Uh, Bill Wilder, people like that. I love that kind of dialogue. It's it's sort of a pity that was Trading Places is almost the last film like that that was made. You know, comedy really changed quite a bit after that. Stop being social comedies. It's more comedies aimed at young at teenagers. Or, but I, I don't remember consciously doing that. It's just I was born in 1946, so I'd uh, been influenced by those films. As a kid, you moved around a lot. When did you finally kind of become a film fan? I was, you know, when I was a kid, I loved movies. You know, I loved westerns. I loved everything that red-blooded kids like. I loved comic books. I loved that whole world. So, and you can, you know, films, even though I lived in all those countries, you can still see quite a few films. I didn't have that much access to television. Obviously. And then when I lived in New York, from the age of about 10 to 15, my parents didn't have a TV. So I would beg friends to let me go and watch Gunsmoke or whatever. I didn't realize until quite a few years later that Brewster's Millions was an earlier film that I had only, I was only familiar with your version of Brewster's Millions for probably 20 years. Really, because it was a it was a novel. It was a Broadway play. They made about three. It's probably one of the most made or remade films ever. And somebody told me that they're going to do it again. As a thirteen year old, I had no experience coming into it and seeing it for the first time. So I thought yours was the only version for the longest time. It's fun to write. It's just like a sort of a novelty project because basically all you're doing is trying to think up more outlandish ways to spend money. It was a bit. You know, Richard Pryor wasn't in a very good place during the making of it so that was a pity but how did you and, and uh mr weingrad get involved with falling down because it seems like such a, a a strange entry in your filmography because i know you were listed as an executive producer on the adaptation of your own work but how did you become a producer for falling down we'd made a four-picture deal with universal and I can't remember why they did it, but they also agreed to give us a sort of producing component to that deal so that we, they would hire a director of development for us to look for projects for us to do. And we found several. One of them was falling down. Because the first film I wrote that was successful was a comedy, that's all I was ever steered towards. And that's the only material I was ever offered. I was never even offered any thrillers, despite the fact that I had written in you know, novels that were thrillers. That was always my, that's my sort of favorite kind of film, falling down. And, uh, a director of development, I think his name is John Tomko, found the script, which we really liked. And then there was a problem because the other producer, I can't remember his name, didn't get along with him very well. Arnold, something or other, he had found the script and taken it to Warner Brothers and they had turned it down. And then, we approached Warner Brothers and we had a, so I think we had a different take on it, you know, how we would want to change it. And that, that case, they said, yes, they greenlit it with us as producers. And then he kicked up a huge fuss and said, how come you're doing this? And then with them, but they wouldn't do it with me. And so at that point, uh, Warner Brothers sort of caved in and said, okay, you can both produce it. 
Well, what was your experience once the project got greenlit? How was that producing a film? It was new, and I have to say, I didn't like it very much because you don't have that much control. If you're a producer, you're either sort of begging something from somebody or else you're meant to be taking somebody off. And neither of those activities appeal to me much. I'm much happier writing. And it was complicated by the fact that there were two sets of producers on it. As I remember, I thought Abby Rose Smith was a fantastic writer, but he was sort of, I don't know, they were at a sort of vital stage when it was being rewritten. We sort of shaped a few scenes and came up with a few scenes, but nothing where I would ever try to get credit for anything. It was essentially a script. What amazed me about Falling Down was that at the time, and I think it was on the cover of Time magazine, and there was quite a bit of controversy about it, but the attitude of the L.A. papers was that it was a sort of a shameful thing to have portrayed Los Angeles like this. And I remember thinking, you know, nobody ever says to Martin Scorsese, you know, you're making New York look bad. It just seemed like such a sort of fucking provincial, weird uh, reaction to it. Well, how was it kind of getting back into the writing then after trying to wear the producer's hat? Well, we were writing the whole time. I mean, we had assignments that we had to be doing, and so we were just, you know, juggling things. But it wasn't as if I stopped writing. It's very unusual to talk to a writer who has so many credits, just because I know there are so many other things that haven't gotten made, probably, for you. You know what? The list is so long, I can't tell you. I, I mean, I think I made a list once of, like, you know, there was like 20 or 30 scripts, or there were scripts that we worked on for a long time that did get made, but in the end, we didn't share writing credit on them. You know, I just had my finger in a lot of stuff. Or just, you know, the way it works is if you're sort of near the top of the list of comedy screenwriters, if a studio is close to shooting a film, they will hire you for two weeks to just see if you can find one last laugh in, in the script. You know, so we worked, I think we worked on True Lies, and I think in the end we saw the film, there was like one line of ours in it, which made sense to me because I, I couldn't understand why they were asking us to rewrite it because it was so tightly written already. It was absolutely fine the way it was. Well, that means you worked on quite a few Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Yeah. Didn't they offered us the one where he was pregnant with Danny DeVito and Emma Thompson? And we just we didn't think that was going to work. And it didn't. Junior, yeah, it didn't. Start. We didn't do that one. You seem to have been working consistently for throughout the uh, '80s, and then a little bit into the '90s, and then after Space Jam, there was a long gap before your next produced writing credit of Astro Boy. What happened in the interim there? I wrote a lot of. Uh, well, I something I can't remember. The exact date, uh, Hirsch and I stopped working together. And then I went back to sort of writing other kinds of projects that I liked. I managed to option a number of them. None of them got made. And then I think I moved to England and I sold a few scripts here. One of them I'm hoping to get made soon here. And then I had a, I did a, an animated film called Astro Boy a number of years ago. And I'd been writing since I was about 21 professionally. I think I published constant smash when I was very young. So I feel like I've been writing a very long time. Astro Boy, I don't know, I think I think I was just I was in LA to tie up the loose ends of a divorce and uh I wanted to get back to London very much and I was a 
a, a writer friend of mine, Will Davis, who was one of the writers on Twins, said that this company was looking for a writer to rewrite Astro Boy, and they were close to going into production. They were desperate. And it was just some of those things where I said, no, I don't want to do it. And they kept saying, please do it. And I said, well, I can't. And sweetened the, the proposition to the extent that you know, they would fly my girlfriend from England out to be with me. And I was, it was just like it was a perfect, for once in your life, you don't actually want to do something. So they end up throwing more, more things at you. Are there any more uh, Thomas Kidd adventures in the works? No, I think I've lived three of those. I couldn't figure out a way to carry that one on. There was a gap, a huge gap between writing that, the second one, and then I had a whole film career, and then writing the third one. You know, writing prose is so much harder than writing screenplays that if you get out of practice, and it took me about five times longer to write the third one than the other two, and I thought I'd just pretty much exhausted the subject. Well, you talked about trying to get some stuff made today. What are you working on now? I have one script that's been optioned by an English director called Oliver Parker called The Fancy, which is a sort of Regency pre-Marquis of Queensbury boxing movie about somebody called Daniel Mendoza, who was the first Jewish heavyweight boxing champion of England, of the world. It's it's my dream project. If I can get that made, I'll be happy to hang up my hat. I seem to remember reading about you working on that quite a few years ago. How long have you been trying to get that off the ground? I've been doing that forever. And in fact, the odd thing was is that I wrote the first version of it in the sort of late 70s before I wrote Cheaper to Keeper or Trading Place, any of those. And I, I wrote about a 70-page script and forgot about it, put it in my bottom of my trunk. And then when I split up with Herschel, I just couldn't think of what I wanted to do and I went through the trunk and I found it. And I suddenly thought, you know, I still love this project and I actually now know how to write screenplays, which I didn't at the time. So I've been doing it, you know, I've been trying to get it made for years and years. I had a cast, about five years ago, I had a cast of Tom Hardy, Colin Firth, and Rosamund Pike to play the three main characters. And the financiers, the financiers said, you know, it's not bankable. I mean, they've all had Oscar nominations since, but it's a really irritating business, but there's nothing you can do about it. Mr. Harris, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Well, this one called the volcano eruption. Well, you see now you have to work out of people. You know, man, I become new. Hit him. Nobody move. Nobody get hurt. Nobody move, nobody get hurt. The youth them just are just up in a white collar shirt. And some of them wear till it resemble dirt. He said, he want me to join the army. <laughs> I ain't gonna do it, officer. No way, I ain't gonna do it. Turn out to left pocket. I searching for a comb automatic. I searching if you have any ratchet. Did you always want to be an actor when you were growing up? From around uh, the age of 15, that's when I, in junior high, I took a class and flipped out, loved it, you know, got got a lot of laughs, so that was it, that was the end of that. Went to, uh, you know, studied in high school, uh, junior college, L.A. Valley Junior College, uh, then I went up to San Francisco and went to SS State and uh, got a B.A. in uh, theater. And in San Francisco, I met Sam Shepard. He had moved there recently. This was around 74, and he was uh, directing some of his own plays, and I auditioned and got in. 
so I worked with him uh, in San Francisco for a few years, and then he they got a production of Curse of the Starving Class at the Public Theater in New York, and I was able to sort of ride on his coattails over there and do that show at the Public. And then I stayed in New York for about three years and, you know, kind of did the New York thing until uh, I decided it was uh, I was heading back home to L.A., basically. I decided in New York, I decided it was like a thing, you know, uh, I came to the conclusion that if you're going to be in New York as an actor, you got to be there at least 10 years to really get a career at it, out of it. And I decided, you know, that wasn't where I wanted to spend the next 10 years. And how easy or difficult was it for you to break in once you went back to L.A.? Well, uh, you know, I don't know about breaking in. Uh, you know, I had an agent by that time from New York. So this was the 80s. And uh, I was doing a lot of, you know, just TV, uh, some film and some theater there. My resume does read like a you know, 1980s TV guide, sort of, sort of a, a lot of, uh, you know, shows. And that was uh, what I was doing about, yeah, about 10 years, I guess I was in L.A. doing that before I was, uh, I started to write. I started to write, uh, I was doing uh, stage in San Francisco, and that's when I started to write plays. I was doing uh, stage plays, doing a lot of those, and when I went back to L.A. and started doing film and TV, I started to sort of segue into doing uh, screenplays. What are you, moonlighting as a screenwriter? I mean, that's got to be tough to just have one career, much less two. I wasn't, you know, I was trying uh, writing screenplays. Uh, I was living as an actor, making a living there. Not a, not a huge one, but when I finally started writing screenplays, I, I stopped the acting. I wasn't really moonlight. I was trying to do both. I, you know, I ended up with an agent who started to get them out there and try and sell. Uh, Falling Down was, it was the second screenplay that I got paid for. <laughs> the first one was uh, a movie called uh, Car 54, Where Are You? The movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've actually had uh, Bill Fishman and uh, uh, Peter McCarthy on the show before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you have? No kidding. What was that? Oh, what, was that for tape heads? Yeah, it? we talked to him about tape heads, and I also asked him about, you know, Repo Man and Car 54, and even uh, I just had Peter back on recently to talk about um, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Yeah, Peter was my partner on Car 54, writing, writing partner. And I was in tape heads, too, by the way. I don't know if you... Ran across that. Mr. G, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was a hilarious movie to do. You said that you worked on Car 54, Where Are You, before Falling Down happened. Or how? what was that timeline? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's vague to me now, but I, I know it was before. Because I met Billy Fishman, and, uh, and I was working with him and Peter on that. So I know it was shortly before. I'm not sure of the dates of when, when that came out or anything, but uh, but that was the first screenplay that I actually got paid for. Yeah, so it had to be just a short time before, late 80s, around the late 80s then. That's one of those where I look at the writing credits now, and there's just so many writers listed on it. Did it <laughs> change a lot between what you and Peter came up with versus what we saw on the screen? Boy, you know, I, that's a hard one to remember what we came up with and, and what uh, eventually made it. I think it was a lot of, you know, it was, it was a series of jokes, of course. That movie is just is basically that. Gosh, that's a hard one for me to answer at this point. I, You know, my memories of, of that is so long ago. And 
I'm not sure how many writers are listed on there. I know that I think Peter and I were like the first, at least, and we were kind of a team. So whatever, whatever we got down there was, that was it. Where did the idea for falling down come from? Well, the very first thing it came from was a, an article in the LA Times. And the article was about this big rig trucker on the freeway who all of a sudden began to ram people with his truck, like ram cars from behind, like push them over to the side. It just kind of fascinated me. It was a trucker and apparently there were drugs involved. The guy was probably high when he was, uh, when he was doing this, but it just sparked me the idea of a guy well, all of a sudden, the point where all the rules fell away, where he's, he's in this truck. And I imagined in my head this guy going, what am I putting up with these little cars for? You know, I've got this huge truck, you know, and he finally like flips and sort of crosses the line where all of a sudden rules of the road and rules of society no longer apply. So that was like the spark that, that got me thinking about, you know, the character and I guess that segued into him being on the freeway and, and just leaving his car. That was another thing. Was well, That was a fantasy I had in L.A. When you're on the freeway and you're in a traffic jam and you uh, all of a sudden, I, I just had this uh, instinct to like, what, what if I just stepped out of the car? You know, what if I just left the car here and walked away and it's like this, you know, screw you kind of a thing. So that was my, my own fantasy that kind of started it off. And once I had the guy in my head, then it was a matter of kind of looking around L.A. and deciding what pissed me off and what, you know, what I could, you know, include in, you know, this thing. So that's kind of where it developed. I'm not sure where the actual character of him came from. Uh, I, you know, I forget over time, but uh, that was the, yeah, so that was the original there, the first development of it. Well, I read an early version of the script, and I was so impressed by how close the movie is to what I read. I tend to think that it changed a lot, you know. Uh, I haven't looked back, really. The movie, the original movie was more an indie. You know, it was a smaller, darker movie. Defense was a, a darker character than what you know, he finally came, you know, came out to. For example, uh, when he shoots up the, the, the Hispanic gang, you know, in... In the version that people saw, he he came up and picked up a gun and like sort of almost surgically like shot one guy in the leg. In the original, he picked up a submachine gun and just raked the car, and you never find out what happened to who was in it, you know. In the Whammy Burger, he actually shot the the uh, manager of the Whammy Burger when the guy told him that he, he you know he's sorry couldn't he couldn't give him any breakfast, so he said, "Well, I'm sorry too," and then shot him through his clipboard. You know, and in a lot of those lines, I mean, that's kind of where where it was it was heading. You know, a lot of darker character. When it became a studio picture, you know, they kind of said, "Okay, let's soften this stuff. Let's pull it back a little bit, and you know, make it more, make him more accessible to the audience, basically." Because there was, you know, there's a word, and there always is, you know, how long how, will they go along for the ride, the audience, you know, with this guy? And if the person just makes them want to shut down right away, then they're not going to do it. So. I think that was the instinct of that, and I think it was a good one. I think it was good. There's that moment where he meets the the Frederick Forrest character. That's the bridge too far. How was that handled in your script? I think that pretty much survived from the original. It seems to me it did, that that was there. And, you know, a lot about his, his uh, being so angry that the guy thought they were the same. 
the assumption, you know, that you and I are the same, we're from the same DNA, you know, we're, we're both racist and everything. And yeah, that was, yeah. So that was there. And yeah, that's the point of no return, right? Speech. That's, uh, about the, uh, uh, about the astronauts going around the moon and when they, when they were in trouble and they got lost. And so that was pretty much, yeah, that survived. That was, that was kind of, uh, what it was about, I think, in the original. There were so many juicy bits of dialogue in there. I mean, you can really tell that it is, and I mean this in the best way, an actor writing this because I imagine you would like to play any of those types of characters. That's yeah. That's a that's the fun part for me has always been like the dialogue and you know the character work. And you're right. I mean, I I always thought it came right from acting. That uh, that's where it came from. I think my fault as a writer is I didn't study it. The basis, you know, the for for the writing craft. I wasn't trained in that. The outlining has always been that's always the hardest part for me. And when I'm writing anything, once they get it down and I'm able to like slip into the characters. It's, uh, it's much easier. When this gets picked up for an option, how closely involved with the project are you? Cause I know you had a small role in the film. Uh, it wasn't one of those like, Hey, thanks for writing this thing. Now get the heck out of here. We're going to rewrite it and, you know, set in a U boat or something. Yeah. And, and that was the great thing about the whole experience was they, I was there the whole time. Every word is mine. There is, there are no other writers who came in on it. Yeah, there was. I had a real sense of of respect for the script, you know, on everybody's part. The studios, Joel, the producers, everybody. It was a great opportunity to be. I, I was there on the set just about every day. I was just, you know, knocked out at just being able to be there and see it come about. That was great. That was a great experience, and uh, I was really appreciative because, you know, anytime they wanted, they could have said thank you. We'll move along now, bring in somebody else, but they didn't. You know, I had a lot of notes that I had to make a lot of people happy. Two sets of producers, the studio, Joel. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, but it was always on me to make it, make it happen on, as far as the script goes. So that was, that was great. That was just great. This is your first time having to, to deal with all of these notes, I'm sure. Yeah. It was an either or, you know, it had to be done because I would have been, you know, sent along if I had, had uh, squawked and, and tried to go against it. So it was, you know, it was taking the note seriously, you know, doing it as I, as I pictured it, putting my own, you know, kind of spin on it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that worked out. That worked out. Okay. Were there any things that you really didn't want to change that you ended up having to change regardless? Things which I, which I maybe had a little regret for, but in the end I understood. I mean, in the original, he lives, you know, I don't know if you, if the, the version you read uh, had that in it. Defense lives at the end of it. The uh, the original ended sitting at, with uh, the detective Prendergast across the table, and Prendergast talks him down and gets the gun away from him, and basically, you know, he lives. They, you know, and that was one thing where they kind of said, "Well, you heard that he has to be punished." Line, you know, you can't you can't put a character out here who does all this stuff, and then he's not punished with you know the symbolic death or whatever. And also, it was certainly was a much more dramatic ending to go out on the pier, have a shootout, cowboy style, than the one I had, which ended you know in a little kitchen uh, across the table. So yeah, I, I understood that. What cracked me up was that as we were shooting the thing and getting to that last scene, one of the producers said, "What if he were to live?" You know, and I and that's when I kind of did a slow burn, you know, kind of <laughs> killing well, I 
told you we should have lived. But by then it was certainly too late uh, to do anything about it. Did falling down help you get more writing gigs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It kept me employed for about 10 years. I, You know, offhand, I would say that. Yeah, yeah. Getting to the screen was another thing, you know. It's, you know, it's like it's kind of a typical Hollywood story that you can make a whole lot of money without, you know, getting anything on actually on cellular, well, celluloid then. But, you know, getting anything actually filmed, but you can make some good money. I made some great money. I was doing a lot of, um, I never sold another uh, personal screenplay. I wrote, I wrote quite a few, but they never made it. I got a lot of, uh, you know, help, you know, helping work on a script, re- rewriting scripts, scripts that people had that they wanted to rewrite and see if they could sell. So there was a, there was a whole lot of that, dozens, you know, somewhere in there. But as far as uh, actually making it to the screen again, there was only actually three other movies that I, I worked on that actually went to uh, the screen. And I'm not credited on any of them. I don't know if I should mention them, really. Uh, I mean, it's not a secret that I worked on them, but I, I'm not credited, so it's hard to you know, throw it out there. I know one is, what, Mad City? Yes, Mad City. Uh, Nick of Time, Johnny Depp. And there was one, I wrote a scene for U.S. Marshals. I wrote a scene, and that was a, that was that was funny, because uh, I guess the, the film was going over, whatever budget, and they came to me because uh, it was one of the producers of Falling Down, Arnold Copelson, was producing it. So, but it, it was like one of the last scene in the movie. And in the original screenplay, it took place in a helicopter as it like careened out of control and spun around and headed towards the ground to crash. And they came in and had me rewrite the scene that took place in a hospital room because because, uh, because they weren't going to spend the money on the helicopter. So, I mean that's. Hollywood tale for you. Those are the only ones that I actually made it back made it back onto the screen on. I made good money, but it was also kind of a heartbreaking uh, time, as it can be for a writer, because you work on a long time on some six weeks, six eight weeks, and then you know you get into it, your heart is in it, and then it's you know put on a shelf or not produced or you know, something like that, and and it's uh, it's hard. It's uh, emotionally hard to get back up and do it again. Did you ever write any more for the stage? Yeah, I have. I continue to do that. I wrote recently. Uh, I've written an adaptation of Oedipus Rex, which, yeah, I'm up here in Portland. I'm trying to get a few people to look at it here. Yeah, I wrote a stage version of Gilgamesh. I don't know if you know Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is literally the first book in the world, made in clay, you know. Uh, I wrote a version of that. Uh, and uh, I wrote something about, yeah, a number of plays, a number of plays. I keep doing that, and I still am. Sounds like kind of light reading between uh, Oedipus Rex and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, well, they're kind of a comic take on it, you know, especially Gilgamesh was. It was kind of a you know junior high school humor version of of the story. I love to go back to the classics like that and look at them and reimagine them. Great experience, fun experience. Which came first, you moving to Portland or Portlandia? Uh, me moving to Portland. Portlandia is one of the you know few things that were that are shooting up here. I'm not sure how long they've been on for a while, and uh, I fell into Portlandia. I'm kind of a semi-regular on it. 
I've done like about five of them, always the same character. I'm part of a swinger couple. It's hilarious, you know, because you never know what they're going to do. And there is no script on it, you know. They just, you just, you go to work and you don't know what, what they're going to ask you to do. And, uh, you just kind of riff it and just keep riffing it over and over until they, you know, feel like they got what they want. Uh, it's, it's great fun. Really a lot of fun. Great group, you know, really interesting, creative bunch. So it seems like things are, are happening in Portland. I mean, I always hear over here in Detroit, it always is held up as being a fantastic arts community. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's getting crowded here, even, you know, since the time that I've been here, which was about 2000. Uh, it's, it's exploded, you know, so the traffic is starting to creep up a little bit. The lifestyle is, uh, but, but yeah, it is, it is, it is good. It's a, it's, yeah, good town, good town for, for all that. One of the things that has happened over the last few years is that people have kind of misinterpreted falling down as being, uh, like a pro alt-right kind of thing, this kind of disenfranchised white man. Have you kept up on those articles and the arguments that go back and forth between people who are saying that, oh yeah, it's it's you know a statement about our times versus no, it's more about what it is actually about a, a guy who's kind of out of touch with the world. I think I've heard intimations of that, you know, that it's that it's some kind of an alt right uh, document or something, but I haven't I haven't read those specific arguments no, or or seen the back and forth on it. I don't consider it that myself. I think your second, uh, a guy out of touch was, uh, you know, more where I was going for. And I, you know, and he certainly, you know, I don't go for what he went, what he did or what he got down to as a statement. Interesting times we live in. There was the, like the, uh, the, the white man, you know, the, the white man losing his privilege. I think that was a big theme of it for me. And somebody getting, you know, pissed off about it enough to, enough to act out. And I thought about that, you know, when, with, uh, uh, a lot of the alt-right with, you know, Trump coming into power, you know, and feeling, uh, feeling like their, you know, their day has, day has come again, you know, sort of. I have thought about that. Well, it sounds like you're keeping busy. You got a lot of stuff going on, waiting for a lot of things to come to production, huh? Well, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I sort of, semi-retired. Uh, I'm still writing, and I want to do a little plug. I'm going to put a book out, uh, a book on Amazon. It's not out there yet, but, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm doing it. I'm working with my friend, same guy, uh, John Klain, who is my agent, who is now, you know, producing stuff and working with um, some online uh, publishing. So I'm going to try and get that out there. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it's called Pro Bono. And uh, it's based on one of my many unproduced screenplays, so it's got my DNA. So if you want to keep an eye out for that, I, by all means, do it. It'll be on Amazon, maybe a few other platforms. I'm not sure yet. So there's my, there's my plug.
Falling Down was 1993, and well into the 70s, you were primarily a screenwriter. Well, I wasn't. I was really uh, doing costumes. That's how I got out to Hollywood. I mean, Dominic Dunn was producing a small movie that Joan Didion, his, his illustrious sister-in-law, and his brother, John Gregory Dunn, also uh, a published author and had considerable credits. He was a friend of a friend of mine, and I just had wanted to work in the movie business ever since I was a kid, and he's the one who gave me my first job. So I was doing costumes for a lot of the 70s. And so it was, it was actually working with Woody Allen in 1973. I was lucky to be getting one movie after the other with very established and successful directors in a row. But the fourth film was with Woody Allen. It was Sleeper, and we were up in the Rocky Mountains. Very unlike Woody. We became very close during the... I was doing costumes, and then he fired the production designer. The brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Dale Hennessy, but their personalities just didn't get along. And we did a lot of it um, ourselves. But he encouraged me to write. He really said, if you want to be a director, you have to write. And I said, but I'm not a writer. And he said, but, oh, just write something and finish it. Just as easy as that. Well, he said, it doesn't exist unless you finish it. And it doesn't exist unless someone, you know, reads it and all that stuff. And, he, of course, he was right. And he said, finish it quickly and... Don't expect to write, you know, the great American screenplay. Just write. And if you can't think of something, come back to it. Don't get hung up. I give this advice when I have to talk to students because it's really good advice. Just get it done and have people read it. And if they don't like it, write another one and just keep writing. And I think any writer will tell you that. Just write. So I wrote and they sold. My first two scripts sold. The first one was Sparkle and it got made at Warner's. And then I wrote Car Wash, which was made at, what did they make Car Wash, Joel? Oh, Universal. Sparkle was a very small cult film, sort of the precursor to Dreamgirls. Uh, Sam Mosteen directed it, and it was the first, for me, I think it was Sam's first directing, Irene Cara and Lynette McKee and um, Dorian Harwood and... A lot of people's first, I think. And the music is spectacular. Curtis Mayfield did the music. Anyway, that was a very small movie made very inexpensively, kind of buried, but it became a big cult, and especially in the African-American community. And then when I wrote Car Wash, which was directed by Michael Schultz, he did a great job. And Car Wash was just one of those movies that hit the zeitgeist. And... The music alone just, and it took off and, and got very prestigious reviews, which was kind of shocking to me. I mean, it was good, but I remember the LA Times did four pages on it, I think, about how it was the working person and how, how we get through the day with laughs. You know, no matter what the situation is. And I mean, I wasn't planning to make a political film in any way. Although there is the black militant and there's the, you know, the gay character. There's a lot of messages in it. And uh, the pretentious Jewish kid running around with the Mao book, 
quoting it, power to the people, <laughs> when his father owns the car wash. But it was all for fun and games, but it was taken very seriously and taken very seriously in Europe, too, which was, I'd like to say my depth because I'm so deep, but it's not. But it's because, but I do think everything you are shows up in your work. You know, your own feelings, your own liberal tendencies, whatever they may be, et cetera. But it was really meant to amuse and that hopefully someone would go see it. And then somehow uh, out of that, they let me direct something. And uh, well, anyway, that's so. So that was most of the 70s. And it wasn't until... I got to direct two TV movies, which did come after Car Wash, I believe. And yeah. And the second one also got great critical acclaim. And that I was able to direct. It's all people fighting for you. You know, there was a woman at NBC that fought for me to write and direct. And I'm sorry to go on about this, but I was not primarily a screenwriter. I wrote The Wiz for uh, Sydney and the Met, an adaptation of a show that was a hit. It was an odd situation because you're supposed to have a little girl playing Dorothy. And when I got to New York, that was a great Diana Ross played it, but it did sort of change. You know, it changed the sort of setup of, of the whiz. But that's okay. It worked with a lot of phenomenal people. And and then after my T, second TV movie, I got my first feature. But that wasn't until the very end of the 70s, uh, Incredible Shrinking Women. Anyway, there you have my 70s, and boy, was I lucky. First off, I love Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill. How have you ever seen that? It took so much to track that down, but I managed to and was so happy when I did because I love these ensemble pieces that you're doing. I mean, it, it kind of... It's like a follow-up to Car Wash almost. There's so many strong well, actors. Well, it was all, I have to say, it was all influenced by Robert Altman at the time. Because I was so obsessed with his films. You know, of course, there was MASH, but there was also McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And it, was just, it went on and on. And I, they were all not coming to mind right this minute. And even with Gosford Park, one of the greatest ensemble casts ever. Um, it's still an ensemble movie. And so is the player in many ways. He created his own style with, wasn't important to hear every word of what everyone was saying. And he recorded each person separately so he could mix them all at the same time. Well, you know, I'm sure you know more about Allman than I do, but it was all, and Sparkle is, is an ensemble and Car Wash, of course. And even the Wizards, as the original Wizard of Oz is an ensemble. And and so, yeah, I was very comfortable with that. Amateur Night is, I mean, there was a wonderful woman at NBC, Deanne Barkley, who fought the suits for me to write and direct that movie. I mean, it's a very unusual television movie at the time, which were very popular, but they were usually based on, you know, either some true True Life or Woman in Jeopardy or a heroic story or, you know, whatever would interest the public. So Amateur Night, the Dixie Bar and Grill was just, I wrote that while I was doing the costumes and a lot of the sets on interiors, the last film I did with Woody. We were shooting out in Southampton. So I was sort of writing as I was sitting on the set, watching everything. 
with great actors. You know, it was a great training <laughs> doing costumes for other people's movies. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I mean, I got to L.A. in 1970, or maybe it was turning 71. I'm not quite sure, but um, I have to look back at how old I was. It must have been the end of 70. And um, so, I mean, I had my chance to direct a feature by the end of the 70s, which I don't think would be very easy in these times. I'm not so sure that small, you know, sort of off the bean path projects are welcome that much. If they are, it seems that the budgets are going to much bigger films. I was very lucky to get to Hollywood when it was still a small industry where you knew everybody's first name. I mean, even studio heads, because everybody, well, I mean, I was lucky I saw people socially. And even though I was making 200 bucks a week, I got invited <laughs> to parties and things. I mean, I was able to go into people's offices and pitch something and they'd say, okay, you know, take a shot. And, or, or more importantly, especially by the early 80s, um, really lobbying aggressively for unknowns, which helped, you know, my cast have really made my career. You know, and I mean, I have to give them a lot of credit. I chose them, but they did a fabulous job. Anybody who has worked with this actor, I always have to ask what their experience was. What was your experience directing Tim Carey in DC Cab? Oh, my God. You are a, a cinephile extraordinaire. The greatest. The greatest. And and he... uh well, he had no trouble fitting into that part. <laughs> and it was just, I don't know if I wrote that with him in mind. I'm not sure I did. I have a feeling that, I'm trying to remember who cast DC Cab, Jackie Birch, and it was her idea. But I think the part had been written already, but then when you see him do it, it looks like I wrote it for him. I don't know if I would have thought of that on my own. I don't think so. Because there were so many parts to cast and so many people that wanted parts and came in. Because Jim came in on DC Cab. And so did a lot of, you know, comedians. But the thing with Jim Carrey, who I got to work with twice after, but when you met Jim, the movie had to be about Jim. I couldn't just shove him in an ensemble because... And the same with Robin Williams when I met him. I mean, they walked into the office when they were very young, and the whole show was about them. They had bigger fish to fry anyway. But they did come in, and I got to meet them on, on when they were very young. And um, So, yes. So, Timothy McCarthy, you are, you are a true cinephile extraordinaire. I, I give you 50 stars. You wrote a lot of the material that you initially directed, with the exception being The Incredible Shrinking Woman. By the time you got to Falling Down, you had uh, started to, to direct a lot of things that you hadn't written. What was that transition like for you of going from directing things that you wrote to then directing the works of other people? Well, I have, I have to just say to you, and I won't make it long, but I really owe Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner 
the beginning of my feature career, uh, along with, you know, Ned Town, who was the head of Universal. Because if Lily and Jane hadn't okayed me to do Shrinking Woman, I wouldn't have gotten to make that movie. And I don't know when I would have gotten to make movies. So it really starts with them. But with comedies, because Lily is such a comic genius and Jane is such a, a, a genius comedy writer, you know, things change on the set because, you know, there's sight gags, some of it is very slapstick, and, you know, it sort of um, becomes more organic with what's going on, and it was way too much for me with the effects. So what happened after that is DC Cab was a small movie once again where I, I, I wrote it, I directed it, and I could pick the cast, and it didn't cost much money. And then came the TV movies. I'm trying to think. What's the first script I did that... Well, Santa Must Fire, I wrote on spec with my assistant at the time, Carl Kurlander. It was Lost Boys. Lost Boys was the first script that I did um, that was from someone else's script. And um, and the great uh, Jeff Boehm came in to rewrite it. And um, it was a different movie. It was, it was sort of Goonies Go Vampire. It was a very G-rated, charming movie with kids. And um, I was going to say no, but I sort of made it a lost voice I wanted to see. And they let me. And a lot of unknowns in that, as you know. So it was really lost boys. I also needed the job, to be honest with you, Mike. The lost boy was, you said, a lot of unknowns, but a lot of unknowns and then a lot of great seasoned actors. I mean, Diane Weist, uh, Ed. How? Um, I don't know how that happened. That on this teenage vampire movie, you know, Edward Herman and Barnard Hughes and then Diane Weist. I mean, these were my first choices. And they said yes. And I remember when Mer the great Marion Doherty, who was a legend in casting at Warner's, when I said I'd love Diane Weist to play the mother, she looked at me because she was a really good old dame, Marion, a two-fisted drinker and a genius casting director. And many, many people owe their careers to her. I didn't do so badly with her either. And But she looked at me like, oh, okay, are you still on drugs, Joel? And, um, and, and uh, I remember I was location scouting in Santa Cruz, and she called me. Uh, or I had to call in on Friday night because I knew they had made an offer. And I remember I was like, I was at a payphone and I was, I was hyperventilating a little. And Diane got, um, Diane, I'm so sorry. Marianne got on the phone and there was a pause and she said, well, you got yourself an actress. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yes. And she started laughing. And so I was jumping up and down with the payphone in my hand. And, then, I mean, I think that as great as the young cast was, and they were, but I think that Edward and Barney and Diane elevated the film. Yeah, and, and it's so unexpected. Edward Herman turning out to be, spoiler alert, the, the head vampire. Wow. Just, it, it, it worked so well. You kind of want your divorced mother to go out with Ed, because Ed himself is such a wonderful gentleman. I know there's... Um, 
There's a book coming out that a British gentleman, Paul Davis, is writing, which is everything you ever want to know about Lois Boys and too much. He told me that when he interviewed Edward, Edward said, well, he was known for such dramatic acting. And when he read this, it was just fun. And no, he thought no one would ever cast me in this role. So I'm going to take it. And I and he sure did his job. And yeah, why they were attracted to this? I don't know. Only they can say. But, uh, oh, you know, it was fabulous. And then Michael Chapman, who had, but you don't want to talk about Lost Boys, really, do you? You do, we will. But Michael Chapman, who had shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, decided I, I asked him to be the cinematographer, and he did it. I happened to catch a screening of Cousins, of all places, on an airplane. I can't tell you how enjoyable that made that flight. I love that movie and such an unexpected performance from Ted Danson. And what a great performance from William Peterson. Just so delightful. Of course, uh, everybody else was great as well. But those two just stood out as being so great in that movie. Ted is an irresistible person. And he was an irresistible leading man. And it was a departure from what was really happening at that time in the in the 80s, because he just wanted a carefree life. He didn't want to, you know, have the 25 year plan. He did not want, you know, what you were supposed to be doing in the 80s, which was, you know, come out of college, have this phenomenal plan make a fortune, be a good American. And he just wanted to have a loving, simple life. I didn't even know if the audience would like it. I don't know. It did not get, uh, it didn't get the audience that I think Paramount was hoping for, which I felt sorry about. But I do, I'm very proud of the movie and it's probably my only romantic (laughs) comedy I've ever made. Except for Falling Down, which is a very romantic comedy. You were really just batting a thousand at that point with Flatliners, and I remember Dying Young making a big splash. When you, How did you uh, get approached for Falling Down? There was the youngest and, in many ways, wonderkind of CAA among all the great and brilliant young guys who now are heads of CAA. What, but the youngest, I mean, the true wonderkin was Jay Maloney. And Jay was a, a friend because I had very young friends that were very close with him. And I got to know him because everybody always said, oh, you and Jay have to know each other. You and, and we got along fantastically with another male friend of ours, Tom. And it was Jay who called me and said, I read this script. And um, it's uh, it's it's like it was made for you. And he said, it's the, I said, well, can you tell me anything about it? And he just said, it is the most politically incorrect script I have ever read. You're going to love this script. Well, I was offered a big paycheck at Warner's to do an Arnold Schwarzenegger action film. And it was more money than I had ever seen. I mean, (laughs) maybe my entire (laughs) family 
in the history of all of them had ever seen. Maybe not in the rest of the world, but in my world, it was huge. And so there was that, but it really wasn't my kind of movie. And then Joel Silver wanted me to do a movie with Demi Moore and Madonna. And that was an interesting film, also action. But I don't know. I didn't know about it. And and then came Falling Down. And Falling Down was going to be made as an HBO movie um, because Warner Brothers owned HBO. Warner's uh, had decided that it was more of a television film. And I can't remember who was going to be in it. I think they were in the process of casting someone. It was really two executives at Warner's, Lisa Henson, Jim Henson's daughter, and Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who said to the producer, Arnold Copelson, and mainly Bob Daly, because it was Bob Daly and that were my great bosses at Warner Brothers. They said to them, this is a feature. Don't give, Don't make this a television movie. This is a feature. When I read it, I went in to meet with Lorenzo and Lisa and um, Arnold Copelson, and they backed me on this, except Bob and Terry wanted, they thought I was too nice to direct Falling Down. <laughs> and, and, and they also wanted me to do Phantom of the Opera because Andrew Lloyd Webber had offered it to me, and he wouldn't approve other directors, and um, it got tied up in his divorce. And I know this is too much information, but anyway, they wanted me to do Phantom and I really wanted to do Falling Down. So I, I just, you know, bombarded one afternoon, Bob and Terry's uh, conference room. And I just kept talking fast and selling myself. They wanted Paul Verhoeven or Alan Parker. And I understand they're great directors. I mean, I certainly am a fan of both of their, them. Anyway, in the middle of it, one of them said to the other, why are we giving Joel such a hard time? All right, just do it. Just do it, but you're not going to get a lot of money to do it. And I said, that's okay. Michael Douglas had been my producer on Flatliners, and because he had done a lot of huge hits in a row, Fatal Attraction, Romancing the Stone, Basic Instinct, and... He had promised his then wife, Deandra, and his son, Cameron, that he would take a year off. But we had become such good friends long before he was my producer. And when I was doing costumes and he was on streets of San Francisco. And we had been friends ever since then. So I just abused our friendship. And he, he was so wonderful to me on Flatliners. And they had this beautiful house in Santa Barbara. And I drove up there on the sort of, you know, the little lie of we were going to have lunch. And we had lunch, and it was great. And I said, well, Michael, I've just read the best script I've ever read, and you can throw it in the garbage. And I know I'm not supposed to do this because you made a promise that you wouldn't work for a year, but I really want you to do this part, and you'd be so brilliant in it. And you're fearless. And, you know, I, but I didn't really go on. I really just said, look, I'm leaving it here on the table. You're welcome to throw it away. He read it. And then his wife, Deandra, read it. And she said, you must do this film. And so that was just luck because he could have said, I made a promise and I can't. 
But I knew he would do it because I knew how brave he was. And I also knew he wouldn't ask me to make his character more user-friendly. Like, he wouldn't ask me, couldn't I break in the bank and, like, burn all the mortgages? Like, wouldn't that be a great thing for my character to do to help other people? I knew he wouldn't ask me for that. <laughs> Nor was it ever suggested, incidentally. You, it's actually, as you know, it's the story of two men that are very similar. They're unsung. They're um, invisible to people. They... Um, both, you could say, have um, serious marital situations, and one has a daughter, one has a dead daughter, and, you know, they're two sides of the same coin, which is when one chooses one path and one chooses the other. So it's really the story of these two men. But unfortunately for, for Bobby Duvall, you know, Michael has all the fireworks, but they're both brilliant in it. Everyone in it is brilliant. It has another great, great ensemble cast. Frederick Forrest as the insane Nazi. You know, Ray Barry as the cold, dismissive police um, captain. And then Rachel Ticketon, the, the gorgeous and brilliant Rachel Ticketon as Duval's partner. And, and, and last but not least, Barbara Hershey, who turned the part down. And, and then, in the first movie I did, played as it lays, the star was Tuesday Weld. We had stayed friendly. She was a recluse, did not work anymore. And I called her. And I, and, but it was really Duval who suggested her. Because in the script, the character is a woman who is beyond beautiful and has become quite heavy. It's a lot based on when couples lose a child. Either they break up very quickly because they just can't handle the pain, or one of them becomes the baby. The script was written by Ebby Rose Smith, who was not only an actor, but ran a small theater company in L.A. And he was the creator of that theater company. And he was an actor and also a director and a writer. This was his first script. And, I mean, to put it in perspective, the riots happened while we were filming Falling Down. And I think that because Ebby is an artist, I think that his pores were so open to what the temperature was in L.A. at that time that, that I think it's truly because he felt it as opposed to thinking it. And if you see a documentary that two of my friends made called um, Straight Out of L.A., which was, and Ice Cube is one of the producers, and I think the narrator. It's when the Oakland Raiders came to L.A., and the gangs took the silver and black symbols. It led to the riots. But that temperature that you'll see in that documentary will tell you a lot. It just came out a couple of years ago. I think it was at Tribeca. And when you see that, it was done on the 30 for 30 on ESPN based on, you know, the famous NWA album, which was, um, you know, straight out of Compton. And this is straight out of L.A. It's very interesting. I think, you know, forget falling down. I think you'll find the whole documentary fascinating. And when you see that, you can sort of see what Ebby felt when he wrote Falling Down. But um, the most fun about it, I have to say, 
besides it being just a delicious movie to do at every second with a great cast and really great writing, is that it was so politically incorrect. And his character was such a dinosaur who was unaware. And so I'm getting to what the most fun was, that when journalists would say, but Joel, is Michael the bad guy or the good guy? I would say yes. And they would say, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, so are you. There's a good, you're a good guy and a bad guy. So, no, we don't have, there's no category. Um, also, I would say half the critics in the world thought we were geniuses, and the other half thought that we should all be killed, especially me. In France, they decided that I was a fascist and that Michael Douglas was acting out my political beliefs. So therefore, a gay, half-Jewish <laughs> man from the streets of New York who works in Hollywood was a right-wing fascist to them. And I would say to them in, in press conferences and one-on-one, I said, you know, we always used to look to Europe for a more enlightened approach to film. And, I mean, if you see... You know, the original Diabolique, do you think it meant that Monsieur Clouseau wanted to kill his wife? <laughs> no. It's a movie. And and um, it was really odd. And they still bring it up that I do interviews in print. Well, and then I did other vigilante movies, and then, of course, that topped it. Yeah, and it was fun doing those scenes because they are black comedy, so many of them. And they are a commentary. I told Michael, I realized in looking at a scene from the film when I had to give them another Lifetime Achievement Award at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, um, I said to Michael and Catherine, I realized you were the first Tea Partier, you know, which is, where is my job? Who are these strange people in my country? And where's my gun? Now, I'm not saying we were prescient. I'm saying maybe Ebby was a little, but... It seems to me more relevant in some ways. Uh, I'm sort of scanning it now on, on the big screen and thinking of, well, you'll come up with things about specifics that I can help you with. What was the Schwarzenegger film that you uh, that they wanted you to do? It got made. I hope it was successful. It's called The Last Action Hero. And it's about, um, he's uh, a, an action star, uh, kind of like, um, I think he's a cop in the movie, but he come, a little kid is in love with him as an action star, and he comes out of the movie screen, and the two of them are in a real crime, or the kid goes into the movie with him, something like that. It was a fantasy. You backed the right horse on that one. I'll tell you who helped me the most was David Geffen, because I called him, and I told him about the situation. He said, and I told him, that I didn't tell him how much the check was at Warner's, but I just told him it would be the biggest money I've ever seen. And he said, be careful, sometimes the devil comes with the biggest paycheck. And I said to him, well, you ought to know. That has stayed with me for a long time. And whenever I've made that mistake, it's come back to really backfire. And fortunately, it's only happened a couple of times, mainly once. Anyway, so that was that. But I was the wrong director to do Last Action Hero anyway. There was nothing in my work that showed any of that. And um, I, I love that our two main characters don't really interact until 
right at the end of the film. How was that directing Douglas and Duvall in the same scene? I mean, these are two powerhouse actors and two, I would say, very different actors in their approach to film. Is that fairly accurate? There was an added stress on that because the actual pier that Michael runs down at the end, that was not what people think is the Venice Beach Pier, where all the rides are. That was the original pier, which is condemned, and no one's allowed on it. But we could have never shot what we needed to shoot if we didn't have total control over, you know, an entire concrete pier. So because I wanted Barbara Hershey so badly, and she was under contract to do a film in England, she had a very short window to do all of her scenes. So we started by shooting the end first, which is very risky (laughs) on a movie. So they wouldn't allow any weight on. That was our agreement with the city of Los Angeles, that we had to have very little weight on that pier. So it's actually a Steadicam operator, me. Andre Barkoviak, the great cinematographer, with a white card lighting everyone, a bounce card, and Barbara and Michael and Bobby and that beautiful little girl. That's it on that pier. And we did the whole thing in a very short amount of time. I'm dealing with extraordinarily talented, but also veteran superstars. And you come ready for bear. And everybody understands we have to get Barbara to England, you know, and we have, of course, the scenes with her in Santa Monica that happen before that that we have to do. But that's easy because we're in a house and, you know, thingy. And But the pier was the crucial one. And so these are not people that forget their lines or forget their business. And also we worked it all out. There's a gun, there's a child, there's a, there's a this, there's a that, you know, when exactly does Barbara leave? It's the last time we see her in the film. And I think we just, as if it was theater, we just did it. And then the scene between Michael and Duval is for me always touching because Michael really chooses to have Duval shoot him because he knows he has the water pistol in his pocket. He knows he doesn't have a gun. So when, when Bobby is begging him to not draw, he draws. He makes a decision. Once you've held a gun on your, your ex-wife and daughter, where do you go after that? I mean, you either spend your life in prison or I guess you choose to go out. Before we shot Michael falling into the ocean, a big producer at Warner Brothers, whose name will remain nameless, when one of my bosses was on um, one of the Warner Jets with him, was telling him the story, and then this producer said, oh, you can't have him die at the end. You're going to have sequels to this. This is going to be like Death Wish. (laughs) Okay. So then one of my bosses called me and said, look, I was just talking to X, Y, and Z, said that Michael cannot die at the end. So you've got to shoot an ending where he lives. So I said, well, I don't know. 
I said, I don't think that's going to go over big. And so I, but I loved my boss. And of course I was very respectful. I said, but here it goes. And so I went over to Michael laughing and I said, this is what happened. And Michael said, oh, oh, please tell him I died already. I died 15 minutes ago and I'm not doing it again. (laughs) And I knew the studio would not argue with Michael. But Michael cut his salary down to very little. I think everybody did. And he let me cut off his hair by because he has very beautiful, very glamorous hair. And I remember when he looked in the mirror, he said, I haven't had this haircut since I was nine one summer. And I said, well, you were due. But the minute that his hair was cut, he started becoming a different human being. And there was an added bonus. Um, because of basic instinct, he had had, um, the FBI had come to see him before we started shooting. There were death threats on Michael because Sharon Stone played a lesbian serial murderess. So the, um, gay and lesbian community in San Francisco where they shot, there was part of it, the most militant part at that time, that were offering money or anyone who could uh, uh, stab Michael with a needle that had AIDS. So the FBI, we had to take this very seriously. The FBI came, okay? And so we had to have bodyguards. But it did a very interesting thing, which was I put Michael's trailer away from everyone else's. And then, of course, there were bodyguards and perhaps FBI and on my car watching. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. But it actually really worked because he was isolated from everyone else. And Michael is very comfortable on the set because he's grown up on sets. You know, he understands the total responsibility of being the star of a movie, whereas, you know, everyone's equal, wonderful to everyone. But he was so isolated. So when he came to the set, a lot of that camaraderie, bon ami, high fives of it all were really robbed from him. And I think it helped him to be isolated. Or I think so. I think so. But acting is acting. He's so great in the part. And they all are. I'm just watching the scene where he destroys the Korean grocery store. And actually... The head, the brilliant head of marketing and distribution at Warner Brothers sat me down, who had gotten me through many a research screening of my movies. He took me into a room at the movie theater and he said, listen, this movie is going to start trouble. And I've been through this on War of the Roses, Joel, and I've been through it on Goodfellows. The minute Michael starts abusing the Korean grocery store owner, you're going to have walkouts. You may have up to a hundred walkouts when that happens. And he said, that doesn't mean, look at those movies. It didn't mean they didn't become successful. It just meant that you get walkouts and you've never had this. You always have one or two walkouts or sometimes you have a walkout, but they run right back. They just had to go to John. When they run right back, you know, they're into the movie. When they're out there for a while, you know they're not. <laughs> and anyway, what happened when he started with the Korean grocer is they cheered. It was in Santa Monica. And I thought, wow, I didn't expect that at all. But 
I think, once again, to the temperature of the time. He was doing what a lot of people wanted to do or had felt. Definitely walk out into their car in the freeway. Most definitely, everybody's had that feeling. If you've ever been on a freeway in a constant traffic jam, you do want to walk out of your car. But no one ever does it because it's such a symbolic gesture. Because once you walk out of your car, it means you're walking away from your whole life. The way that you put that sequence at the beginning together is terrific. The way that you're conveying the heat, the annoyance, and then the way that you're building and building and building the editing style of that particular scene is really sets up the whole movie to, for success, I think. Paul Hirsch, who was the editor, we shot very little film uh, on, on Falling Down. We had the smallest ratio of film on a feature movie in years and years because it is all supposed to happen, of course, one extremely hot, sultry day in L.A., but we got into one of those uh, fog layers where every morning it would be foggy and the sun would not break till four or five. And the Steadicam saved our lives. I mean, we were shooting on some of the meanest streets in L.A., and we're actually shooting the day that the riots started and came back to work two days after the riots, which was insane. But we did it and we didn't even think about it. And we weren't scared for a minute. Well, you have great cops on the movie. And also they told us that if the Rodney King uh, verdict went down, you know, uh, where the cops were walking away from it, there was going to be blood on the street. Daryl Gates, the police commissioner, chose to ignore this. And so our cops told us, so the night before the verdict was going to come down in Orange County with an all-white jury in Waspland, we were supposed to shoot in Englewood, which is in the heart of South Central. And our cops said, do you have anything you can shoot on the lot tomorrow? And I said, yeah, I mowed some close-ups of Michael in the car for the opening. And I can do stuff and all the stuff inside the car, like the handle and all those things. Um and they said, let's do that. Let's be on the lot. And sure enough, you know, that's when it broke out and we could get all our people home. But we would have been right in the middle of it with a huge movie company, trailers and trucks. And I have to say, everyone in the neighborhood was so wonderful to us all the time. So I was hoping that I was hoping that we would stay friends, but who knows? And when we went back there, everything was fine. And we used a lot of the people in the neighborhood in our scenes and, and they were great. The beginning is actually the beginning of eight and a half, and only two critics in the world got that. Then when R.E.M. did Everybody Hurts, they were in a traffic jam and stepped out of the car. But I think theirs is based on Wings of Desire, the fabulous, you know, Tim Fender's film, where you hear people's thoughts while they're in their car. But then everybody said that R.E.M. copied us. And then someone else did something similar. And then they said, well, they copied R.E.M. But it's really all started with eight and a half. And I mean, I stole, I didn't just, it's not just an homage. It's a steal. The kids on the bus. There's a lot of things in it. I mean, of course, we Americanized it and contemporized it. But there's a lot of little moments in it. 
there because Mastriani is in the traffic jam. But I mean, it's it's uh, it's all in one shot. It took eight hours, and we shut down the Harbor Freeway. We shut down part of the Harbor Freeway on a Sunday. We were not loved, let me tell you. And so, in order to do it in one shot, it's it's supposed to start in Michael's mouth, actually. But that had to be done in the lab because we couldn't get the lens in that tight. But it started on his his mouth, and it it's just one shot with the techno crane. And when it begins, the top of the car is off, and then it goes to the little girl that reminds him of his little girl, which you sort of get much later on, but you wouldn't get it here, and you may never get it, and it's not important, but it is to him. And then, you know, it goes through Garfield and the woman with the lipstick, and then it goes to the big bus with the kids screaming and throwing paper planes and stuff, and then people arguing, oh, you can see the old cell phones, which are as big as a shoebox. And the guy is picking his nose and screaming into the phone. And and then it goes all through that and then ends on the license plate, which says two pens. So that had to be done in two days because if you make one mistake, you have to start from the beginning. Well, no, it took one day. I'm so sorry. It took eight or nine or ten hours to shoot that if the light until the light gave out. And then the next time we went back, we did the part where Michael walks out, Duval helps push Michael's car aside. The writer is in that scene, Ebby. He plays the guy who yells, hey, where are you going? When Michael gets out of the car. And then he and Duval and the cop push Michael's car out of the way. And he tries to sell linoleum to Duval. <laughs> so... You know, there there is black comedy you know, all over the place. Even with, I'm watching the two gang members now, and Michael's speech is so great to them. Oh, I get it. I've stepped on your shitty little piece of territory. And these guys are great. The two guys who played the gang, the gang kids. Yeah, the scene in the burger shop is one of my favorites. Just the... Uh, well, it cracks me up. Especially the comparison of the burger on his plate to the burger... On the, the menu. So true, isn't it? Oh, yes. I also loved that Ebby wrote that scene, which is was like, we've stopped serving breakfast now, sir. You'll have to pick something from the lunch menu. And the two actors there, that's uh, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Michelle Pfeiffer's baby sister, is the young lady with the burger hat on, and the manager, gosh, I forgot his name, and he's so wonderful. I've seen him in other things. And um, one of my favorite lines is when he says... Um, Brent Hinckley. Right. And what was his character's name? Does Rick. I just remember. That's right, Rick. And then Michael says, okay, Sheila, Rick, why am I calling you Sheila and Rick? I worked for my boss for 17 years, and I always called him Mr. And now I walk in here, and I call you Sheila and Rick like I'm in some goddamn AA meeting. It still cracks me up. I know it's bad to laugh at jokes in your own movie, but I didn't write them. You mentioned that you were very into the idea of the script being so politically incorrect, and I'm curious why that was such an appealing thing for you. Political correctness, which, like all things that have a very positive beginning, 
you were walking on eggshells, especially in the movie business, and I'm sure on television, definitely. And, you know, this is the very early 90s when we did this. There was such tiptoeing around on it that um, studios were terrified to do anybody, you know, to have people in their movie that might step over a line. And this just blew up things. I mean, it, it just shook everything up. And I, I didn't do it to hurt anyone's feelings or to judge anyone else. Uh, I wanted to show someone what the script said to me was, this is a dinosaur who, who doesn't realize he's like somebody that lived in a cave and just walked outside and thought, what the fuck here? And, you know, when, when Michael says, I'm the bad guy, I did everything right. I did everything they told me to do. And that's what he believes. The idea that he's got a gun on his ex-wife and child has sort of, like, <laughs> quickly, you know, by, been bypassed. And he sees himself as, like, it's the first moment he realizes he's the bad guy. And I think that Michael and I decided at that moment, then he chooses to start thinking about his death. The subtext of everything is that violence begets violence. Because when the Korean grocer picks up the bat, and then Michael wrestles it away from him, and he keeps that bat, and then when the Hispanic gang members come and start fucking with him, then he opens the briefcase and he has his bat. And then they have butterfly, a butterfly knife. And then he walks away with the butterfly knife. And then, of course, they go after him with a bag of guns and then he has a bag of guns. And then it keeps kind of growing from there. And Frederick Forrest, who is the most violent person in the film and threatens Michael the most, uh, he still has, then he still has his butterfly knife, which saves his life and kills Frederick Forrest. And that's when he crosses the line because there's a great line where he says to him, because Frederick Forrest keeps saying, we're the same, we're the same, you and me, showing him the Cyclone B from, you know, from the concentration camps. And I mean, you know, this is way beyond anything else that's happening in the movie. And when he keeps saying to Michael, we're just alike, you're like me. And then Michael is outraged and says, you know, no, you're insane and I'm a good American. But he means that. You know, it's not, it's not a joke. He, he, the character, really means that. So he thinks what he's doing is, you know, that he's still normal. <laughs> and, and, but once he murders Frederick Forrest, then up until then, he hasn't really crossed the, the moral imperative. When the movie came out, Newsweek did a cover story about white male paranoia. What, was, what did that feel like to have and wasn't Newsweek? It also, wasn't it also they mentioned something about the vanishing white American male was part of that, or was it another magazine? But... I mean, I think that it, if you had a head on your shoulders and you lived in California 
which I did for, for so many decades. I mean, if you weren't aware that Caucasian people were becoming the minority, then you really, uh, I mean, you had blinders on. And because, you know, with the huge Asian population and the huge Hispanic population, uh, we've all always celebrated, you know, uh, a, a major African-American, um, you know, population uh, in California. So, I mean, it was obvious if you had a head on your shoulders that you could look at, not out at people, but just look out at what was happening in the whole world and realizing that, you know, that that white people had run the earth and now there were many more of other people <laughs> who might not want to just take orders. We had not only helped to win wars, we won the economic war. And then there were other economies like China, like Russia, where their economies were getting extraordinarily successful on different levels. And whether it all went to people was another story in the Middle East. And, you know, that that it's still the greatest country in the world. I mean, make no mistake. I love my country and I'm certainly a product of the American dream. A boy gets lucky. And also, it's fun to shake things up. It's fun to cause a little outrage. I think it's amazing that my bosses made it at Warner Brothers. and. You know, when they saw, uh, you asked me that um, you complimented how well edited it was. And what I, I didn't finish telling you is Paul Hirsch, who, you know, uh, uh, always has been a very important editor. Um, we, we shot very little film. And so his first cut, which is called the editor's cut, is kind of what we released. I'm trying to think if we've made any changes. It's always a shock to a studio with what what's on the paper then becomes a movie. And even though they had read the script and greenlit the script, et cetera, et cetera, and they were thrilled with the cast, and when they saw it, I mean, their, their jaws dropped. They were in shock, and I understand it. Bob Daly, one of my fabulous bosses, asked me to come to his office and he said, you know, Jesus, Joel, is there anything you can do to make this more user-friendly? I said, you could burn it. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, look, Bob, you guys have had the real courage to make this movie. You knew what the script was. I know when you see it on film, it's kind of, holy shit. <laughs> What have we done? But I can't insert scenes like, I mean, where he does good things so that people go, ah, because Michael won't do them, number one, and you'll ruin the film. So we either show it or not. And that's totally up to you and Terry. But there isn't any way to chop this up and make it, in your words, more user-friendly. And then we had this phenomenal screening in Santa Monica. And everybody was all smiles. I was worried about violence in the theater. That's all I was, not, not in the research screening, but in general. There were a lot of cartoons about it. The New Yorker did one where it shows, this, as only the New Yorker can, a 
middle-aged, affluent, um, stout couple, obviously at an east side box office window. And the husband's wearing, you know, a fedora hat and a beautiful overcoat and a wife. Is wearing very expensive clothes, but he has a small gun out and says two tickets for falling down. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing so much at that, but it's just so funny. And um, then in London, they did a copy of our poster, but it was a, a, a big, <laughs> a big space. I don't know if it was the Guardian or. Uh, I don't know which paper it was in. I probably have it here somewhere. I'd have to look it up. But they drew him, like Michael, standing on those three steps. And he didn't have a gun. I can't remember what he had. But in the same costume that Michael wore. And um, it's it was the movie was called Appalling Clown, Not Falling Down. And then it was all kinds of things about... <laughs> That John Major. And, um, you know, all those wicked London political cartoonists. And so it really hit the zeitgeist. I mean, they took it uh, in competition at Cannes, which is, you know, there's very few movies that are chosen for competition. We did not know that it would have that effect. You don't know. And I'm not a profound person. I just knew... For me, it was the right movie at the right time. And I was blessed that they made it. But the credit really begins with Debbie Rose Smith because it's his script that... And, you know, uh, you know, I hadn't worked with a lot of huge stars when I did that. I worked with some young people who became stars. You know, these were, you know, A-list actors and stars in Hollywood, and a lot of them. And, you know, that was relatively new. I wouldn't have gotten that cast if it wasn't for the screenplay. I mean, they like me, but they're not going to do a movie because they like me. <laughs> the political incorrectness that happened in Falling Down is nothing like what happened in the last political campaign. I think that... Um, you know, and as I said to Michael, I think you were the first tea partier. Is it true that Graham Ravel had written a score that wasn't used for that? A whole score? Yeah, that's what I had read once. No. Okay. I think I would have remembered that. You would think so, yeah. Yeah, because I would have got to meet Graham Ravel. I had worked with a lot of great composers on my films, even the very small ones. I don't know if I'd ever... I don't remember the Graham Revell thing. No, I think I'd remember throwing out a whole score. And maybe he was hired by Dick Donner. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, this, Dick Donner was not uh, um, going to direct Falling Down ever. I don't know who was ever going to direct Falling Down. No one to my knowledge. I don't know who was going to direct it for HBO. You know, when when Lorenzo and Lisa you know, got this, got... Bob and Terry to take it away from HBO. Perhaps Graham Rebell is going to do the score for that. Oh, it was because I did the client next. And James Newton Howard was going to do that also, but he left to do wider. No, it was Hans Zimmer who was supposed to do the client. 
And then he left to do Wyatt Earp. And then I'd always wanted to work with Howard Shore. And he said, yes. I don't know. Too many movies. Too many. You mentioned the current climate. And you said that Falling Down really tapped into the zeitgeist. But I would say that it's still echoes so loudly in 2017, almost louder now than it did in 1993. I agree. And I think, not that, not for me, but I think you'll look at the script as prescient, definitely. Unfortunately, it's much worse than this movie. This movie at least has some funny moments in it. There aren't too many lately. <laughs> So, yes, and I think that is, I, I have to always say that I think it was Strasbourg. Um, I don't think it was Kazan, but I remember years ago, one of them wrote where the, or always said that where the writer ends, the director begins, and where the director ends, the actors begin, and when the actors end, the audience begins. And uh, I've always felt or read that it was the director's job to, even if you're doing The Greatest Shakespeare, uh, your role is to elevate the material, no matter how great it is already. Because if you're not, why, why be a director? I don't know if I elevated the material in any way, but I think I got a great cast to do it and a great cinematographer, Andrei Barkoviak, and a lot of really talented people in all the behind-the-camera scenes. You know, Barbara Ling was the production designer. Marlene Stewart did the costumes. And as I say, a great editor. Speaking of writers, you have worked with some really strong writers over the year. I mean... One of uh, Andrew Kevin Walker's uh, early scripts, uh, I mean, the seasoned veteran Larry Cohen, one of his greatest scripts. You've really done great with so many good writers. Well, okay, this is off the record, but, well, no, I'll say it on the record. Andy Kevin Walker wrote a fabulous script called Eight Millimeter. It was daring, it was bold. It was as far from a summer movie as you could possibly get, having just done happily the two Grishams and the two Batmans, you know, one right after the other. And it, you know, was dark and dangerous, and I knew it would be controversial, and I was lucky to get it. But as great as the script was, I felt it needed some changes. Not in the initial story but in certain character depictions. Andy was furious with me and walked out of my house and I have never seen him again and I was sad that that happened because I would have loved to work with him. And all I wanted to do was cut down 10 pages of dialogue that happened over many locations to a much shorter way to deal with that material. I felt really sad about it because he's so talented and I loved getting to know him. And you know, Seven is still such a perfect movie and with with one of the greatest directors in my time, my friend, the genius, Fincher. 
And I would have loved for him to be on the set and helped us, you know, but um, I felt it was best for the film. But, yeah, and I think it made it impossible for us to ever work together again because I don't think he would. He was so angry with me. So, um, yeah, that was sad. Um, Larry Cohn had a brilliant idea in Phone Booth. It was written at a time. I don't know exactly when he wrote the original script. It was a fabulous idea. He had talked to Hitchcock about it. So that's quite a while ago, because I don't know what year Alfred Hitchcock died. Certainly dead before I think I got to Hollywood. Because I met his producer, Norman Lloyd, the great Norman Lloyd, who was part of the Mercury Players and also part of Orson Welles' world. And uh, he was fantastic to me when I was a costume designer and and gave me a lot of great advice. But so Larry had had pitched this to Mr. Hitchcock, uh, as he said, um, but it was very much uh, Broadway. The um, press agent was kind of like Sammy Glick. Um, but in his middle age and the Katie Holmes character, um, was a middle-aged, um, peroxide blonde manicurist. And, you know, I wanted to do a very young movie. I mean, the idea of phone booth is still there and there are funny things and things of Larry's that are all through it. And I don't want to take away from him, but uh, we did two weeks of rehearsal and a lot of it changed in rehearsal, besides the age of the cast. But it is Larry, just as it's Sandy Kevin Walker, because first there was the word. <laughs> and there wouldn't be an 8mm or a phone booth without Larry's invention. And Andy Kevin Walker's, who dared to do illegal porn and snuff, would never get made today. <laughs> Never. More of a chance on, um, you know, Netflix or, or um, you know, a, uh, one of those systems that make great shows than it would on, you know, I, I can't imagine pitching it to a studio. And, yeah, and, oh, God, the critics just, oh, my God, there was such a tizzy over it. It was as if I had murdered babies. The the umbrage of the journalist, you know, the the moral the moral judge, and um, so the I would laugh all the time, and which would make them angry. But I'd say, don't do you think these things don't exist? There were no such thing as stuff movies, Joel. You know that's an urban legend. I said, really? I said, in a world where people rape and murder their own children. What do you think people can't do? What is it you think the human being is incapable of doing if they're so bent? Like, what are you talking about? What world are you living in? Believe me, eight millimeter is a teeny weeny weeny tip of the iceberg because the reality is so horrific and it's all documented in a, a book called Gods of Death. And there's an Israeli, I think he's ex-military, 
well, everybody is, I guess, in Israel. But I mean, he was, I think, a special servicer. He's the one who exposed the neo-Nazis in Germany years and years ago. And they did, I think HBO did a film about him. Oliver Platt played him. And um, the great Oliver Platt. And he did a book, this book, Gods of Death. He decided to to go undercover and investigate if there was such a thing as snuff movies. And it's much worse than anyone can possibly imagine. I mean, it's a very bold movie, and it was very bold on Sony's part to make it really bold. I think it did well. It was a big hit in Berlin. <laughs> Nick occasionally went to the Berlin Festival. And it did well. It did well for Sony. But I know that the American critics were outraged by it. Gandolfini and Stromer. I love Peter Stromer, and he was so creepy in it. I know. He's so brilliant. He used to wear a T-shirt, which was the name of his band, which is the big, um, the big white guy that put Steve Buscemi in the wood chipper. Because <laughs> no one knew his name. They'd always say, you know, that big blonde guy who put Steve Buscemi in the wood chipper. <laughs> And that was the name of his band, I think. But he's a fab. You know, he's part of, um, he was part of Bergman, Ingenbar Bergman's theater group. And he can do anything. He can do absolutely anything. And, you know, he's so heartbreaking in uh, Breaking the Waves. But he's really great. That, that character was based on a real character, Dino Velva. Yeah, who thinks he's an artist. He makes porn, but because he intercuts it with some artistic visions, he thinks he's an artist. And I can't remember that porn director's name. I'm sure he's no longer with us. He was always high. and um, But, yeah, phone booths, you know, I've been around for so long. I think that a lot, there is so much to be said for luck. And I think a lot of what happens with film, the best way I can anal uh, analyze it, after all I've seen and done and been through, you just have to be the right place at the right time with the right movie. And that doesn't mean quality either or lack of it. It just means because, look, every year we all see movies that we say, why hasn't anybody told me about this? And you start to ask your friends, did you see this movie? Did you? No, they don't know what you're talking about. And then maybe there are things that everybody agrees are phenomenal. And maybe you go or uh, you and your partner or, or whomever. And then you go, uh, uh, okay, okay. I don't think it's, you know, the greatest movie made in the millennium, but um a lot of people are loving it, and and so it's all it's all just the right place at the right time with the right movie, and that's the only way I can explain it. Because if everybody could have hits, that's all they do, and if everybody could have unknowns become stars, that's what they would do. I didn't make those young people become stars. I think they were stars, and I think what happened is I just was lucky enough to get them and put them in a movie that showed off their wares with the right part. It's the audience that makes stars, not directors. Well, I want to know what you're working on these days. I have, I'm 78. 
<laughs> and I have been working since I'm nine years old. And that's not one of those stories like, you know, we were so poor we couldn't afford a mother. We were poor. And it was just my mother and me. My father died when I was four. And I've been working, and I love working. And and I was so lucky in the movie business. I got my dream, and I got it bigger than I dreamed it. Um, when I worked on House of Cards, when when David Fincher called me and said, come down to Baltimore, come work with me on House of Cards, that was so passionate because the scripts, I mean, the scripts were so great and the cast is so wonderful. And it was, you know, we were creating something new and it was, it was very exciting working all together. And, but I don't, I was going to do a movie in China that I was tied up with for two and a half years. That would have been, for me, one of the greatest labors of love ever. And unfortunately, when the new president came in, he eventually, you know, like Putin did, like a lot of, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the right words. Uh, very strong leaders, I think. I'll <laughs> right on the edge of dictator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, uh, that that word would never cross my mind. And um, but uh, my fabulous boss, Mr. Han, got fired slash retired. You know, and. Um, the movie didn't go forward, and that, for me, would have been a fabulous, fabulous movie to make, even if it was my last. And it didn't happen. But so I'm writing. Uh, you know, the way I became a director was writing. So I'm writing something I think could be a series. I I have the luxury. Um, the last two movies. I did were not my best films and there's a lot of reasons why I did them and all the reasons were wrong. And I just had spent the whole life being a, a freelance person with, you know, that nagging, you know, thing in my brain, which is where's the next job? Where's the next job? You got to get the next job. You got to get, you know, where's the next job? Where's the next job? And until my significant other, turned to me when I was just about to make another big mistake. But it was a go movie with a movie star. And part of me was going, that's the next shot. And you gotta do that, you gotta and I was having so many arguments with the producers. He just turned around and said to me, You don't need to do this movie, you know. And I thought, so right. No, I don't need to do this movie. And I didn't. But I really hadn't bottomed out on that addiction of which is where's the next job? Where's the next job? You should have been <laughs> because since I was a kid and, and both my parents died when I was very young, there was no one coming. You know, it's like my life was in my hands from a very young age. And I didn't even think about that as, as a maybe 14, 15 year old. I didn't think about it. I just went on. I don't see movies that I wish I had directed, which is fine because they didn't ask me and who's interested in my opinion anyway. I do see, I do see fabulous television and quite obsessed with certain shows. 
especially um, especially from um, Britain. I like I like as you might imagine dark dark subject matter. Well, for instance, when eight millimeter is made, imagine the idea of something like Breaking Bad or Mad Men being on primetime television. Impossible. They would have arrested you if you tried to sell Breaking Bad. So I think the world is, let's say, more jaundiced in some ways or more accepting of how flawed we all are because the anti-hero, which is, of course, personified with Breaking Bad and, and Mad Men, but also Nurse Jackie, you know, that people have come to understand and really connect with Maybe not people of those extremes, but whatever is our flaw, you know, our fault, our our weakness. And I think that's good. I think it's good. I think that there's plenty of family fare and plenty of family channels, family shows, family movies. But people do come down on you hard when you do violence and sexual violence and, you know, yeah, but... It's not as if that's taken over the world. I mean, there's plenty of alternatives for people. And so I'm trying to work out this series that I hope I can sell to someone. It just requires a great deal of research, and I need to do it, and I'm doing it. But it, I had to do an enormous amount of research for the Chinese project, too. And that was fun. And this is fun, but I can find living people who will be quite elderly that will know this stuff. And I, I have to find them. But, but I have so many friends in, in, in New York that would know people like this. So I'm not worried about that. So I'm trying to do that. And I'm trying to write something else. And it's fun to create people and tell them what to do <laughs> except when you but when you get to make the movie it doesn't work that way because oh for me i found out that <laughs> a movie director is not god a movie director serves others too <laughs> so it's not just forcing people to I remember a very, very, very famous, world-famous star who was starring and directing, I'm not going to say the sex, called me and said, how do you get your cinematographer to do what you want them to do? Knowing this person very well, I laughed. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't work that way. You do it together. And... He or she said, but they're not doing what I tell them. And I said, well, why don't you try to just work with them? You don't have to tell them what to do. Have you listened very carefully to what he wants? And, but it was such a, it was almost naive. It was naive. And the person hadn't starred and directed that much. So it was forgivable. But I just love that. How do you make them do what you want? I don't want to make a movie where I'm making every. I mean, there are times when actors refuse, or it's very seldom, but they were, when they were very young, and I would say, listen, let's not, let's not do this. 
Right. We need you to do this in this scene, so just please. If you were doing Shakespeare, you'd say, Harketh, here cometh the king, and the king's just won three wars, and, and you know, quiet, he approaches. Right. I said, so sometimes you have to do exposition, but do it with your style. You can do this, but that's rare. I have to say that's rare because you can work those things out before you even shoot it. Sometimes the question, do I have to say this, can be, no, you don't. It's Julie Roberts when she was 19 or 20, when we did Flatliners, she was 19 or 20, I can't remember. But she would say to me, can I just do this with a look? Do I have to say this? And I said, yeah, you can, especially when you look like you, yes. But sometimes, no. And that's when you have to do this. Okay. But I love that. Can I just do this with a look? Absolutely. Have I given you more than you've ever needed to know in your entire life? Or are there any burning questions that you would have uh, that are appropriate for this particular? You know, I know that you're writing for a show right now, but have you thought about writing your memoir? Because you've got such, so many amazing stories. You, you, you know, maybe one percent of one percent of one percent of one percent um no i cannot write a, a book because you can't tell and if you don't tell there is no book mike nichols once said that the difference between plot and story is the plot is the king died and then the queen died and he said but the story is the king died and then the queen died of a broken heart so you can't write the plot of your life. You have to write the story, and when you write the story, you will violate every person you've ever known and met and loved and worked with, And because that's what's great about the stories. And you're violating a very intimate part of people's lives. And what's, what, what happens on the set stays on the set. I've only talked about how mentally disturbed Val Kilmer was, and I hope he got help. And I told um, Marky Rockland, I think, that people that Tommy Lee Jones was an asshole, was an asshole on uh, Batman Forever because he was so mean to Jim Carrey. But that's all I've ever said. But I can't be sued for libel because it's the truth. Joel, thank you so much for this. This has been terrific talking with you. Well, it, it has, and I'm sure you've talked to geniuses, and I certainly am not. But um, thank you for all your time and trouble, and anything you need that we can help you with, let me know. I wanted to say, when do you leave for China? Uh, day after tomorrow, so Thursday. Okay, we'll have a great, safe travels, and good luck in China, and I hope we'll speak again sometime.
All right, we are back, and we were talking about falling down. Now, I don't know if you guys had a chance to read uh, Mr. Smith's script. I mentioned to him in the interview that I thought that the script was fairly close, and he definitely didn't think that. Now, I read what was called the first draft polish, and I would say that really it's pretty close in a lot of respects. There are some interesting differences between what he wrote and what ended up on screen. One of those is that, believe it or not, but the Tuesday Weld character is actually crazier in the script. Um, she actually gets on Robert Duvall even for the way that he answers his phone. There's like nothing that he can do that she is happy with. The other biggest one for me was that Michael Douglas cold blood shoots Rick at Whammy Burger right off the bat. So there's no um, – Frederick Forrest, his death, that character's death is off screen, but we see the Whammy Burger manager get shot. So that kind of puts a different spin on things because the violence is earlier and it's a lot less – necessary. Uh, so he's more of an unhinged character, I would think, in the Smith version of this, even to the point where the army surplus guy, the Frederick Forrest character, never gets the drop on uh, Michael Douglas's character, never gets the drop on him so that he can then you know, feel justified in killing him. He ends up just killing him anyway. And there's rather than it being the family at the plastic surgeon's house. It's actually the plastic surgeon and his family. And the Michael Douglas character has the plastic surgeon's wife take off her top and he, he ogles her tits because that was the work that the plastic surgeon did. Mm. Yeah. What? Really much more gross in this one. Uh, yes. Yeah. I'm glad that's not that. <laughs> And then the other thing that really kind of struck me and that wasn't a pun, was that when they go over to visit Bill's mother, she's actually got bruises on her face because uh, William has struck her uh, recently. So he still is very, very violent. So kind of, to me, that amps it up even more what he's going to do to the Barbara Hershey character. If he isn't above hitting his own mother, that who knows what he's going to do to Barbara Hershey and the little girl. It certainly, uh, that version certainly sounds like it would raise the stakes uh, and it would be something more akin to a, like a, something they would produce in the 70s. But uh, I like the, I, I kind of like the fact that it's more a- ambiguous. I, I think and I think it makes for a more interesting movie. Oh, completely. I, I actually, based on what you said, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it even nearly as much. And yeah, I, I wouldn't like it. Seeing bruises on the mom, you'd lose me right there. I'm done. Nope. Kill him. Yeah. Kill him. Yeah, and he seems to be more of like a, I don't want to say he's like chewing bubblegum kind of a guy, but he seems just like a little more quick with the, I won't say quick with the one-liners, but just a little harder edged. And I think that that is something that Michael Douglas and the rewrites definitely do bring to the role, is that we do sit here and have these problems with this film in so far as we can't just paint him in one color only that he is shaded which makes for a much more interesting discussion rather than look at this pig who's walking around LA and attacking people there's a lot more to his character it kind of reminds me of and I guess it's it's almost on the other end of the spectrum we would normally hang out with the Robert Duvall character and just get his entire story. And the Michael Douglas character would just 
barely be on screen or it's just us learning about him through perhaps flashbacks or something. And it kind of reminds me of the killer from Targets, where, again, it's I, I like that Targets doesn't give us the motivation necessarily of our main of the shooter. Uh, and that makes it almost even scarier that this kid just kind of snaps one day and goes out and starts killing a bunch of people. But at the same time, I, I, I like what they're doing with Michael Douglas here that we see more of the snap. Um, and he doesn't kill a whole bunch of people. He just has the potential to do it. He's like a, a loaded weapon walking around uh, LA and we never know what's going to set him off. There's that scene at the bus stop where he's getting jostled and he's looking around and seeing all these different people. And some of them seem to be violent to one another. Some of them aren't. And it's just like, is he going to go off at this moment? And luckily he doesn't, but it seems like that potential for violence is always there. Yeah, it's interesting that he's not, uh, as opposed to what was probably in the first draft of that script, he's not a militant in the finished movie, necessarily. He's he's a worker bee in his short sleeve dress shirt and tie who creates the weapons that arm the militants. Well, I think it's the difference between character and caricature. If If... It stayed the way – the things that you mentioned, I think, take it too far to where he's just a villain. I, I don't see any nuance in that, personally. Uh-huh. This was the better way to play it. I think it came out better this way. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that he was such a major character in this so that it wasn't just – I thought that they had the good balance between Duvall and Douglas. Like I said at the very beginning, I wish there would have been more of the Barbara Hershey character. I would have liked to have known – why she necessarily stuck around. But then at the same time, it's just like, I feel terrible saying that because I hate the idea that a woman who is abused, that I'm sitting there watching her on screen and saying, well, why didn't you move away? I mean, what does that say about me? And what does that say about society when we just go, oh, well, you can solve all of your problems by moving away. Why would you even be in the same city with this person who abused you? Why does she have to move away? Why is she the one that has to change everything when he's the asshole? And she did everything that was in her power to do illegally in terms of the restraining order and such. And I, I, I think the film... Um, paint sadly an accurate portrait. I, I don't know how much uh, the regulations have changed uh, in the intervening 25 years. I would imagine they really have, but uh, that the, the cops can't really, uh, can't really do anything unless something is done first. And that's, that's what's, what's scary um, in that whole scenario. I mean, they, they, they can't move in unless he actually breaks in and does God knows what to them. They need to send him up the queue on a Kitty Raper beef. You know what they do to Kitty Rapers in San Quentin? So are there any other movies that you guys can think of that remind you of Falling Down, or does this kind of stand on its own? Uh, well, one, the one that really sprung, springs to my mind every time I, I have watched this is Fight Club, and you already mentioned that one. Just because you have a fractured psyche, spoiler alert, and you have, you have a guy wanting to bring down everything that's wrong with the world. The the two are very connected to me. I, I really feel like the entirety of Falling Down, you have Douglas's character wrestling with that, his internal demons, one one trying to do good, one obviously out to just express his anger in every way possible. And Fight Club 
captured that in much the same way. It's very much an angry white guy mad about all the bad things in the world or all the things that he sees as bad in the world and he wants to fix them himself. So I see a deep correlation there. I was looking around for like some sort of men's rights movement take on falling down because I know that there are people out there that do feel this way. Like you were saying, Jamie, as far as like, oh yeah, defense is our hero. So I was looking on YouTube for falling down MRM or MRA or whatever the, the, the acronym is and um, MRA, I guess. And came across a video of why femini- feminism is ruining the lives of boys. And it was just like, it felt like something that somebody who had watched Fight Club too many times and didn't understand the movie would have put together. So it's and and what was sad, even more sad, was that it was one of dozens of videos that I found about feminism ruining the lives of young boys. And I was just like, oh my god, this is killing me here. But I didn't see any video essays about how great defense is and why he should be lauded by mentors. Oh, thank actors. God. Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned some movies that it kind of reminded me of. But, I mean, I'm sure in some people's eyes, this is the ultimate uh, uh, white man problem movie. (laughs) Which is sad. All right, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. At the height of the slave trade, there was a special breed of slave called Mandingo. The Mandingo was the most powerful, the most beautiful, and the most desired slave in the Old South. And one Mandingo towered above all the others. Four thousand. I'll pay more. Five hundred more. His name was Meade. He could kill a man with his bare hands. He was born to fight and fought to mate with the most beautiful women on the plantation. Dino De Laurentiis presents Mandingo from the shocking bestseller that told the truth, the real truth about the Old South. Ken Norton in his first screen role is the Mandingo, a slave who had no master. Ken Norton, the great heavyweight fighter, now the toughest, the greatest. Mandingo, a Paramount release in Technicolor, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Mandingo. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jamie and Aaron. Aaron, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, uh, I still do the award-winning Hollywood Outsider podcast where we talk about movies and TV every single week. Uh, And I just launched a new podcast about two months ago, actually, with two co-hosts where each – we called Smirk – where each week we write – an original story, and then we launch discussion from that story. So we don't know what the topic will be until the story is finished. It's actually pretty interesting, very creative. So smirk. And Jamie, what's the latest with you and your geeky friends? Uh, we're chugging along. We're, we just uh, did our 10 best of the year lists, and um, that's always a popular show, and our Oscar coverage and that kind of thing. So it's 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 we still got the general discussion every week on any film that comes to mind. Um, and, you know, on, on the side, this might sound completely crazy, but on the side, I'm, I'm trying to solve murder. <laughs> Wait, what? Are you doing like a true yeah. crime thing or what? <clears throat> no, I, I mean, I, I have my Tinseltown Tragedies podcast that I'm doing, but I, I've become really invested in this one subject of, of one of my episodes that I did four years ago, and I I, I was recently on a 
on a Mysteries and Scandals episode uh, talking about it, one of those true crime TV shows, and uh, it kind of reignited my interest in it. So in any free time I have, I'm, I'm looking into that. So I'm honestly, I was at work the other day, and <clears throat> my coworkers were like, Jamie, what's the, what's, what are some good movies you've seen lately? And I said, I haven't had time to see many movies. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm working, and then I spend time with my father who was ill, and then in my spare time, I'm trying to solve a murder. <laughs> and it sounded so weird, but it, it's true. It's absolutely true. That's fantastic, man. Congratulations. That, that's cool. Well, I haven't solved it yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's the uh, going after it's still pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, this is a 40-year-old cold case. I'm just trying to get as much information as I, I can, and I, I think we're moving in the right track. Jamie, if I can, I believe that it is Ted Cruz who's actually the <laughs> killer. Jesus. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you absolutely solved that. I, I don't have to look into that. So, Jamie, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, MovieGeeksUnited.net, and that includes all of our content, of our thousands. It's an archive of about a thousand filmmaker interviews uh, and special series from cinematography to film scoring to Unsolved Hollywood Murder. Uh, it's all there at that website. And how about you, Aaron? Uh, TheHollywoodOutsider.com is where most of it is, and SmirkPodcast.com for the other. The, the Hollywood Outsider has our normal show, any independent film inter- director interviews we do, as well as remake this movie rights on there, too. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You can also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.